This week on Of Mechs and Men, Morgan still just wants to know what's going on. Rowan adds another engagement to her record. Colonel Winston has to admit he's dead, and Hans demands to hear how it all went down, but he finds his story a little flimsy. This is Of Mechs and Men, a Battletech book club. I am Kanan Hill, joined as usual by my two good friends, Brent. It's me, Brent. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. And we are also joined by a special guest, Jason Hansa. Mr. Hansa, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's me, Hansa. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. <laughs> so, um... How we doing, boys? Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, Mr. Hansa. Thank you so much for joining us. For anyone who does not know, Jason Hansa is a prolific Battletech writer. I mean, you've been writing for Battletech for, gosh, how long? When did you first start writing for Battletech? First started writing, trying to get into Battletech was in about 2005 when I went to uh, Afghanistan. I had a lot of time to write at night, but um, my first couple stories were rejected. Uh, I did win... There was the unique next contest going on. Actually, I was in Afghanistan where you could submit in. And so uh, I won three of those mechs, which was totally what? blew my mind. And yeah, uh, yeah. If you guys ever find the old unique mech PDF. So and, and then those characters slip into my stories every so often. So like, <laughs> so I, I've been, you know, not only uh, my characters, but other ones. I've been lifting them and moving them into my stories. What? And so that was kind of what convinced me. I could write. Yeah. And uh, in the second Light Horse story, the Seeker that comes in that meets, you know, that that's actually a, from the Unique Mechs contest. Yeah. From, you talking about No Dust Nowhere? Yeah, No Dust Nowhere. No way, dude. This is fresh lore. This is new. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> this is, oh, we're already in it. We just started right away, didn't we? Neron. N-E-R-R-A-N. Yeah, he was a one of the mechs, not mine, somebody else won in the unique mechs contest. And yeah, that character is a seeker and, you know, the right alpha is like in yes. the right galaxy. So I lifted him, you know, he's an uplifted extra, essentially. <laughs> this is what I'm talking. This is incredible. Then my first published story was called Citations of Respect about a history professor. One of my winning characters was a history professor. So it was, you know, so I, you know, I lifted him out of there. So anyways, I started trying to get into 2005. My, I was first accepted in 2007, and the, the story Citations of Respect came out in 2008. So I guess that's about 16 years now. 16 years. That's what I'm talking about. What I mean is, you're a real one. All right? <laughs> Did you hear all that? What he just said about the unique mechs? That's what I mean. No further explanation required. <laughs> and yes, you've published... Don't don't ask me to count. Yeah, ten fifteen. <laughs> I guess I can book on Sarna. <laughs> yeah, but they're not all there. Well, the names I think are there, but a lot of them are just stubs. Like this is a story by Jason Hansa. You know, cheers. <laughs> this is saying seventeen that are noted on Sarna. That sounds about right. Yeah. So yeah, that's about one a year, give or take. I mean, it, it, that's the average. There was a couple of years where I had a couple of stories come out, and then it was a couple. You know, obviously during the dark times when Battleport sure, shut sure. down. Or, nothing got published but uh yeah i just i just started writing i just wanted to see if you know i wanted to write i thought i'd, I'd like it so just did and then i kept working at it 
and improving. And I'd sit there and read stuff online. And there was a, a writer's group that way back in the day, uh, Craig Reed, you know, me and him both had our first stories picked up like within 30 days of each other. We've kind of came with the, the ranks together. And yeah, it's, you know, I was the baby. You know, I'd had like a story, two stories published. I'm like, yay, me, I'm almost a writer now. Yeah. And I look around and like, I'm the old guy, you know, me and Craig are like veteran writers, the prolific yeah. writers. It's like, how did this happen? <laughs> so. You did it. Welcome. About 16, 17 years now. He's done a bunch of them. And uh, I think he's done some pretty good ones. Am I right? Thank and you. also, beloved writer, friend of the show. Am I right? He's always posting. He's always in the chat. That's our guy. And you wrote this story. We have invited you here so that we could talk about There's No We in Mercenary. That is a short story from the complete Eridani Light Horse Chronicles, which have all been collected in the No Greater Honor anthology. Okay. And there's also an official audiobook available on Audible as well. And so this short story actually does have an official audiobook. Check it out. No greater honor. The complete Eridani Light Horse Chronicles. Okay. And you actually have two stories in that anthology. You have There's No We in Mercenary and uh, No Dust Nowhere. Also a cool story. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I call it my big and loud and small and quiet stories. And so and then when you read them, you, you can understand why. <laughs> That's pretty good. They are very different. I would like to talk about that, the other one in the future. Anyway, so there's no We in Mercenary. I believe it says that the original novella was released in August of 2021. So this was just, it was released individually, right? This was like a set of like short novellas about the light horse, the uh, Eridani light horse. I think we've mentioned them before on the show. We haven't talked about them that much, you know, storied mercenary unit. There's so much about the light horse. You know, you don't need me to tell you. Eridani light horse. <laughs> However, I specifically wanted to talk about this one because this one takes place chronologically exactly where we were in Warrior Coupe. I mean, literally March 3rd, 3029. It is the same day. And so I thought, dude, it would be so fun to talk about this because it's like it's like right here. It's just like a secret little side chapter about this other thing that happens on the same day in the same place. And it's really cool. And some stuff that happened a short time before. Mr. Hansa, what inspired you to write this? I mean, were you given a prompt? Were you told to write this succession war story? Was this was this like an idea you had? Were you like, oh, dude, I'm going to have Hans meet with the light horse like what was the origin of this well they, they sent out an email and by they i mean uh specifically phil me the managing editor at the time he sent this out he's the managing editor of shrapnel and you know soliciting various authors you know so it goes out to a bunch of the published authors and he put in a little blurb about the light horse and then they wanted to go in time so they said what we need this anthology will fe feature 10 stories and i think it was eventually bumped up to 10, 10 or 11 and then um it lists Star League, Early Succession Wars, Late Succession Wars, third, then fourth. You know, it's got a little blurb. For, so for the fourth one, it lists the ELH was involved early in the war, was kept in reserve for the rest of the war. And then it's got a little bit, you know, about Cowich. It mentions Michael Hasekdavian. Maybe they could have betrayed, you know, been betrayed by him. So it had a couple prompts there. And so, yeah, what, the first thing I did was I went, when I, you know, when a solicitation goes out, you generally don't have a lot of time. You got to kind of think fast and respond fast. And they also encourage you to respond to a couple of the different prompts. That way they can kind of 
shake up. Like if, if my story, my suggestion is not the greatest, but somebody else has a really good suggestion for that same story, they'll take theirs and they'll take that me going to my second suggestion. And not everybody always makes it. Like I was solicited for the Tukiad anthology and I didn't make it. My, and my pitch wasn't as strong. I've read, I read the story. It was great. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was the, the Nova Cat one. It was great. So I solicited for two. And I was surprised and terrified when I got them both. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so the prompt was the prompt was there, and then I fleshed it out. That makes sense. A lot of times, though, for the solicitations, they don't prompt you. It's more of a, we need a story set in the clan invasion, you know, preferably from the clan point of view, go. So, uh, yeah, and then there's, you know, a couple of things they, they asked uh, to incorporate in the flagpole if possible. They wanted between 5,000 and 8,000 words, which I completely blew past. <laughs> so, no, but yeah, that, that's that's how the, the stories came about, uh, essentially the, their initial nuggets. So this one specifically, they asked for the time period. It needed to be like Fourth Succession War, but it wasn't specifically about Cowich. No, it, it specifically mentioned, yeah, you didn't. I didn't have to pick Cowich, but it didn't mention that as a nugget. It, it said... Uh, it could be turned into a moment where the EOH's contract allowed command to force their orders, where they accomplished the goals on Cowich. It was poorly done. EOH either took damage they didn't need to yeah. and or were forced to compromise okay. their honor. You know, you know, they're, they're given ideas of where you could run with it. Yeah, that is interesting. Also, you didn't know that you were going to get two of them. I didn't. <laughs> and uh, when they first sent the, the emails, I think they, they typed in the date wrong. And so... It was like initially when they first sent out, you know, hey, you, you've been picked up for these stories. We need them back in five weeks. Well, two stories in five weeks is a thing. I was, I, was like, I was having like a beer, a glass of water, type of glass of coffee, and then just repeating. I was typing until like one in the morning. I was I was a mad man until they sent out another email like 48 hours later, 72 hours later, saying, oh, these are the real dates. Sorry about that. They got them. So, no, but yeah, I was like, oh my God, I got two stories. This was the harder one. The second story, which is the, the jihad era huntress based story, I had in my head from start to finish, like when I sent in the solicitation, I knew every beat of that story. I knew the characters. I knew all of it. Just it, it just I don't know why it just formed in my it just you know sprung into my head almost pure uh, formed. This one was a grind, and then there was continuity issues that I came up and I had to fix. It took a lot of twists and turns, and the continuity issues is why. You know, Hans got involved to spin back around to, you know, how this story ended up taking its shape and why it starts where it does is I had to have Hans involved to fix the continuity issue. And then the second reason it starts where it starts is because I needed to know where Hans was. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to cause other continuity issues. And on the 3rd of March, he's in a very specific spot. I had him <laughs> tied to a chair was so to make it easy. Because again, with anthologies, you got to move fast. You got to write fast. It's got to get to the editors and fact check so they can get it out in the timeline they want. You don't want to be the guy they're waiting on. So it made it easy. Okay, I'm going to put on the February 3rd. You know, Morgan's walk out and they walk in. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of inside baseball stuff about how, you know, the sausage is made for these anthologies. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in here, right? That it's like really you had to get all of these to line up in the right diamond plate. There's, there's definitely like a technicality to it. You can feel it. Yeah. Interesting. It's got a texture that I really in, enjoy. We'll talk about it. But um, that's so interesting about its, uh, you know, about its creation. You're right. That is a little inside baseball. Yes, dude. That's what I wanted. Great answer. That's so fun. But that rules. I'm excited. You guys want to talk about this thing? We can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. 
The story begins. We are on New Avalon, and it's the 3rd of March, 3029. Remember, this is the same day that Hans did the press conference about Duke Michael and then went to talk to Morgan and all that. And they got in that argument, and we watched the tape of uh, them turning the body over. Same day. In fact, I believe that this happens immediately after those scenes end. This is the next thing that Hans does. Isn't that funny? I love this. So (laughs) the story starts and General Armstrong and Colonel Winston from the Eridani Light Horse, they've arrived on New Avalon. They're here to meet with Hans Davian, right? They've arrived at this meeting and on their way in though, they run into Morgan, right? We get this bit at the beginning we're on their way to Hans's office. They run into Morgan and they have this short conversation where they all introduce themselves. Oh, of course, I can't forget Major Cynthia Paulson is with them, the commander of the 1st Armored Infantry Battalion, also with the Light Horse. There's three Light Horse representatives, General Armstrong, Colonel Winston, and Major Cynthia Paulson. Okay. Um, they all introduce themselves to Morgan. Now, we know that this takes place after the press conference because Armstrong mentions that they've seen the press conference, right? He expresses his condolences and uh, he's like, we saw the press conference. And you're like, okay, all right. And we know that Hans went straight to Morg to talk to Morgan after the press conference. So this must be right after that. I do love that as we're meeting with Morgan here. The one thing he asks is like, Dude, please it's so bring funny. me into the brief. If, if Hans will allow it, just keep me in the loop here. It's That's all he asks. So he's like talking to him. Uh, Morgan's like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> and they tell him, oh, uh, we're here to talk about Cowich. And he's like, Cowich? Back in January, he mentions, that's, that's funny. So you guys must have taken a command circuit. I wasn't aware that anything happened on Cowich. That's weird. And then he like looks and then he's like, so you, uh, you know, can you guys tell me what you guys talk about? And they're like, yeah, 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 man, we'll tell you. And then like you hear like a, <clears throat> and I feel like the camera is like, it like focuses onto the background, you know, and you see Quintus has been standing there like by the door the whole time, just like, and Morgan's like, I gotta go. I got it. He's like, T- talk, tell me about it. You know, tell, talk to me. Yeah. Quintus is just like, <clears throat> and they like look over and he's like, you know, this way, this is so funny. Quintus interrupts them. He's basically like, he shoes Morgan away almost. Like, these are my guys. Stop talking to him. And he's like, tell me, tell me what they say. <laughs> it's been a lot of shooing Morgan away this day. Oh, so I, all right. I like that they go into Hans's office. Okay. We see Hans. Hans is there already seated behind the desk. I like this. He doesn't, there's no long introduction where he's like, oh, I've gathered you here about whatever. Clearly everyone knows what the deal is because they walk in and Hans, he just has, he like silently, opens a folder and like it's all business and he just looks up and he's like you can begin and they're they just they're just seated and then the story begins and i i like that it's told through this like narrative viewpoint but clearly as we're reading the story they're telling the story to hans because you'll see we're occasionally cut back in between it's almost like they're commenting on the story and then we're commenting on the we're just like a third layer of commentary over the so now we're like a layer deep already technically this has already happened we're jumping back hans asked him (laughs) to begin and then we jump back all right the story begins we go back to college okay that's in the attic's pdz it was the 12th of january 
3029. All right. And so that's where our story really begins. We have to learn what happened on Cowich. So I, I wanted to talk about this little detail real quick. I was unfamiliar with uh, the term PDZ and I looked it up and I wanted to confirm this first before I even said it. it it's polymorphous defense zone, correct? Oh, is that true? That, I have no what idea. The term means it is. Yep. They, uh, back in the defense zones, and I don't know when, but at some point they had like easily geographically manageable sections that the Capellans and the Draconis Combine managed to always sit there and just hit. They'd hit the one section and they just, you know, hit all those and then reinforcements can come in. So the Federated Suns made these polymorphous defense zones that weave and kind of cover each other. So any of offense by the Capellans or the Draconis Combines would start crossing borders, getting more sectors involved, you know, pulling in more units. So essentially any combine offensive would have to face the, the two sectors instead of just one, or they'd have to really try to wiggle around it. Oh, interesting. That's, it's, it's a, that's a great answer. That's perfect. Yeah. That's a, wow, PDZ. <laughs> PDZ, that's what I'm talking about. I, I, I know a thing or two. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just, you, know what's so, you know what's so funny? I'm not military. So when I see some stuff, I just think, oh, it's a military thing, right? And I just keep going. I'm military and I'm not familiar with this story is very military heavy there's a yeah, um, I yeah. Think that's why a lot of vets like it, i think you're saying that pdz is actually a battle tech thing oh yeah yeah that's not like army stuff that's that's battle tech interesting that's great yeah good to know yeah this is not the first story you wrote that takes place in the attics pdz no irreplaceable i believe it takes place on attics i think if i remember correctly there's a scene with the uh the christmas ball i think he's on attics he's right so yeah irreplaceable was a story that Jason Schmetzer approved back in about 2009, 2010. And I could not believe that he approved it. It was like a, a massive wild swing in the dark. I was swinging for the fences and it paid off, I think. I, I, people seem to really like it. Dude, irreplaceable rules. We're going to talk about it for sure. I already told him. I, I, I think we've already, if we've already could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's in the front lines. Yeah. It's in front lines, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Battle Corps Anthology Volume Six Front Lines. I, I, you know, and I do believe that that it one is, is one of the ones much. that's available print on demand. Uh, check it out. And actually, that one is a twofer because that one also has your uh, kangaroos, <laughs> infantry riding kangaroos. <laughs> uh, in that story, I feel like, at least for me, a lot of times we see Hans. He's got the burden and weight of the entire Federated Sons on him. You know, he's this. You see him as this monarch or as a husband, but in a kind of a, it's not a political marriage, but it kind of is. And uh, I feel like that story, Irreplaceable, you wrote, it. you see him at like his most vulnerable and his most human. And I think we see him at his best there. And uh, I, I really love that story for that reason. I really hope we get a chance to cover it. Thank you. Yeah. But the, the nugget behind Hans's development for that story was... In the, the source book, it mentions that Hans was a, like kind of a womanizer when he was younger. I was like, well, who is the first girl to break his heart? And that yeah. just kind of the story spun from there. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, um, general flirt, social flirt. You know, <laughs> it is. That was, you know, that was before Hans, the character consumed him completely. He's become yeah. this machine <laughs> at this point. Which speaking of, we should get back to uh, that Hans <laughs> These three officers from the Light Horse, right? So they're here to tell us what happened on Cowich. 
Okay, what happened on Cowich back in January? So we jump back. January 12th, we get this first scene, right? Where we are, we are first introduced to Captain Cynthia Paulson. We saw her earlier, but this is where we get, I like, it opens with a shot of her like inside the trebuchet, right? She's like trying to install a wire harness. She's like really up in there, but she's got like cool like overalls on. And I did like that. I like seeing the mech warrior like all up in there trying to like work on it. You forget about the mechs. These things have to be so annoying to work on having to crawl up in them and stuff. Shout out to the techs. They work, they work so hard. The mech warriors get all the glory. I, I, I wanted to capture that 3025 feel where everybody owned their mech and the mech warriors did a lot of their own maintenance. You know, only really asking the techs to come do what they couldn't do themselves. So that opening scene is kind of a callback to that old 3025 Battletech, that, that second edition kind of box set where mechs were breaking all the time. It really does feel that way. I like to think that if, if this was a film, you know, like the camera would be in the leg with her, like Correct. getting that claustrophobic shot. Totally. Yeah, yeah. With the black, you don't see that it's just black on either yeah. side. And she's just, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Cynthia Paulson, <laughs> and this is kind of our main character for the most. We'll be following her a lot. We get introduced to Captain Cynthia Paulson, which I think is kind of an it's a an important little detail here that I think tells a story later on. Well, we we've already kind of seen a little bit of that where first introduction right. is Major Cynthia Paulson. Good point. So something yes. happens. <laughs> that's so, that's a subtle thing. I I think a lot of readers don't catch until the second time through. Mm-hmm. Right. Good point. In the beginning, they refer to her as Major. Right. 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 What happened on Cowich? Right. Please explain. <laughs> what are they doing out here? I do like, we we get the little description of the little <laughs> outpost she's at. Imagine, you know, she's not on base. They're out in their little outpost. She's working on her trebuchet. There's a bunch of mechs here. They have like a company of mechs. You know, they're out here with their long tom artillery. I just want to shout out. We get a lot of long tom in here. They're out on this outpost. <laughs> a half yeah. battery. They do some work later. Uh, their designator is uh, it's Boomer Company, uh, which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah, and yes. so 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 she's with Roadrunner Company. <laughs> They're hanging out with Boomer Company. They got the Long Toms. They're out in their little outpost. They're chilling out here. All right. They're on Cowich, and we see this other character down there. She's lying on a beach towel, right? And Cynthia goes down there to talk to her. And this is where we're introduced to um, Rowan Avalar, right? I love this. Rowan's so cool. I, okay, I, I did like the part. I like the visual though, of Cynthia Paulson shimmy down the ladder and unzipped her maintenance coveralls to the waist. I imagine most people do. <laughs> I felt there was some intention there. Yeah. I will say, too, that this is the part where you're going through and describing how at least one mech warrior had to be like right next to their mech at all times. And you get that as almost like that tension idea of like, oh, they're mentally keeping ready, but then you immediately break it away to, oh, but that also means sometimes they're just lounging around and having a little fun. And that was something that gave me that first idea of like, I'm reading a Hansa story because that's (laughs) something I've noticed in some of the stories that I've read by you is that a lot of the characters you'll introduce are making the best of their situation. They're having a good time in something that might not necessarily feel like a good time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, I think it comes a lot from, you know, I, I, I'm retired army. And so you, you're always joking. You're always kidding around. You know, like in the flirting situation later on, there's a lot of flirting going on. <laughs> there's a lot of you know, off-color jokes going on, you know, innuendos. And 
you're making the best out of a really crappy situation. So yes, I try to kind of write that in where we have a saying like the army's going to get its time back. Yeah, they're going to work you to death. So when you have a chance to take when you have a chance to take a knee, take, take a knee, drink a cup of That's coffee because right. the army's going to get its time back. Yeah, get some sunbathing in. Yeah. Can we pause here for a second yeah, about sure. Roadrunner Company? Yeah, absolutely. And why Rye Rowan, Rowan is in this company? So all of these call signs and everybody in this story, except for Rowan, is directly pulled from the old Merck's Handbook, to the old Facet Book, sixteen sixteen published in like 1986 or something in, in that old PDF or that old book, they had what they, they call now the phone books where they list every single person in the unit. Like the uh, Wolf uh, and Jade Falcon books. Yes. I, yeah. I always skip those. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't read them. Yep. So if, you, if, you, if you bust open the PDF, Page 78, <laughs> roll on down. You'll see 14th Company, Paulson's Roadrunners, Captain Cynthia Paulson, veteran, trebuchet. And so the reason why Rowan is in that company is because if you count, that's the only one with only 11 people. This is what I mean. <laughs> I can only imagine the amount of little things to get lined up that you had just like that. Everything's like this. Yeah. Yep. Lila is in this book, the the colonel's aide that we'll see once you know that she's in his lands, all of it. So I decided to throw that out there. <laughs> yep, Boomer Company, commanded by Captain Vierson Holland. You know, that's not in the story, but yes, Boomer Company's listed. This, you you pulled these, it, you said it's the Merck's Yep, that's a 1616, the original Merck's handbook. This is incredible. Page 78 in the piece. <laughs> <laughs> Every single name you see uh, that in the, the lances when she's sitting there, like in about thirty seconds, Mechwarrior Sienski in his century. Yeah, Sienski. Yeah. Get back to your Mech battalions calling no you. No way. Looking, looking yeah. her command lance. <laughs> okay. Okay. Of course, now the Sarna guys are Sarna guys are going nuts because they're going to have to sit there and put stubs for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice they were doing some work for uh, you on this one. Looking around Sarna, I was like, oh man, they've got little stuff about this story and like all kinds of nooks and crannies. The only shifting I did in the Roadrunner Company is McCormick and his Griffin shifts from Command Lance down to the Recon Lance, and Rowan takes his place with the Mervin. Because these all every book in that in the Battletech universe is written in universe, and they're a moment in time. So theoretically, I could use every, I could just made up names, but you know, names is really hard. <laughs> so somebody else, somebody did all the hard work for me. Right? They gave you a grocery list that you got to pull from. Exactly. So. Yeah, that friendship. I mean, if if a different company had had a missing mech warrior, I you know it, it would have been a totally different story. Maybe them and Rowan would have been dating. I don't know. It would have been totally different. So maybe maybe it would have been an old mentor kind of person instead of a best friend. I like to think such respect for the old texts, right? That he would honor these, like uh, you know, the foundational <laughs> texts by really, it is. A, I you know, I think it's a show of respect. I, thank you. I, I do I it see. for the fans. I do it for like. There's probably one person out there listening to the show yes. that's going to say, "I knew that." Yes. You know, you know I, did, I, I did it for them because it, I I think there's a sense of satisfaction when you're reading a story and you find the Easter eggs and you find the continuity notes. You know, I love it when I read other people's stories because I'm a writer and a fan. So I love it when I can see the linkages that other writers have put in their story. So I try to, at every chance I can, to, this is a big universe. It's a wonderful universe. And so I try and tie it back every chance I get. Is it fan service if it's for two people? 
You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fan, fans is plural. Yeah. <laughs> that is the beauty of BattleTech, though, is that they do the math, right? There's always like the, all the fact checking, like undoubtedly with this much detail and resolution that that the lore has at this point. There are errors, however, it's for the most part it keeps pretty good continuity. All of BattleTech, right? And uh, I think, uh, you know, we were joking about like two people appreciating, but I I, I really do believe that uh, that that a, a good portion of, of BattleTech fans do appreciate. Yeah, it does feel like one of those essential building blocks that separates BattleTech into what it is. Exactly. There must have been someone, you know, there was a kid with the basement who needed to name his pilots. And there was someone at some point pulled their names out of that book, right? Or they like made this lance or something. Wouldn't it be cool if years later Mm -hmm. they like read it and they were like, these are my guys that I used. That'd be be so tight. Listen, we were talking about Rowan Avalar and it's interesting because she's introduced (laughs) Rowan Avalar, niece to the president of the Outworlds Alliance and 10th in line for the throne was a black sheep who wanted to be a mech warrior in a nation that revered aerospace pilots. <laughs> There's a lot of debt in that paragraph, which is, I would say, a theme of this story of yours in particular, is that there's generally a gross amount of data per words in this one. Yeah, I write dense paragraphs and I expect readers to keep up. I'm not going to say that she's Denise again. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, though, with detail... Right. Like it really does. This story benefits for taking your time and kind of like unraveling it. I think that's the charm here is kind of like reveling in the details, which uh, we might be known for at this point. Uh, <laughs> I, I have been looking forward to you guys ripping apart the storyline. Really because you guys, you guys are, would appreciate it. You guys will sit there and look at a line and sit there and say, wow, wow there's three different things in this sentence. It's incredible. Aaron, did you know that, <laughs> that the Outworlds Alliance reveres aerospace pilots? I think I've heard that. Be- I'm like, yeah, I've heard that before. No, actually, that was new to me. In fact, I don't know much about the Outworlds Alliance to begin with. I was about to say, Aaron, Aaron, I doubt you know much about the... I don't know much. I know more about them post a certain invasion than I do really pre-invasion. And so all of this little data put me on a... Uh, it put me on a little Sarna hunt where I learned some things that I found interesting. So everyone in her family was an aerospace pilot, but yep. little Rowan wanted to be a mech warrior. So her parents bought her a Merlin. That's what this says. They bought her a Merlin <laughs> and sent her to Galatea. Oh, I think she ran to Galatea. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you know that. But yeah, her, and I wanted to kind of mention, I deliberately broke up. This is just what I did. You know, her uncle placed the call, but he didn't buy it for her. You know, her parents yeah. did, which means that she's rich. Yeah. I mean, she's rich, rich. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that her her uncle is the leader. He's the president. So, I mean, she's got that in. She's, you know, and Battletech's a very feudal society. So, I mean, she's essentially a princess, but she's 10th in line. She ain't taking no land. I mean, she'll get a homestead somewhere, probably the size of Connecticut, but she's not getting yeah. a world or nothing. <laughs> well, she did get an off-the-line mech, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a sweet spot. If you think about it, you get all the benefits of being somewhat royalty without uh, 
all of the responsibility. <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly. it, it enables her to kind of run off and do this. Right. Yeah. And you drive that point home with mentioning that the Merlin being one of the brand new mechs that we see, which is a rarity at this point in time. I had a question, you know, Lord help me. Here we go. I had a question about, is the Merlin <laughs> a new design? Or is this a new production run of an old design? I wasn't sure because I don't know. But I was like, they would. There is a series of stories in Shrapnel. God help me, I can't remember who wrote them, but there's two of them so far. And they're phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I'm going to actually try and figure this out who wrote them. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. I just remembered what he... He's right. Wait a minute. I have... I just remembered these. Those are cool. The ones about the Merlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are stories. I forgot. Yes. That's about the development of it. That it was yes. a, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's two of them, right? <laughs> yes. There's the initial one, and then there's a follow-up set in Solaris. And both are phenomenal. The Reckoning by Russell Zimmerman, right? Isn't that the one on Solaris? Yeah. Yes. And then Sealed the Deal. Is that the other one? It, sound, it sounds right. Which, which Shrapnel is that? Shrapnel 11. I just wanted to say that issue 11 of Shrapnel is absolutely top tier. It's I love... Like top to bottom, issue eleven is a great issue. If you have to pick up one just to give to a friend or friend of family trying to get into BattleTech, yes, the the two stories by Russell Simmons, starting in Shrapnel Eleven, this you know, detail the production of the Merlin. It's a brand new mech, brand new design, and freshly made. Absolutely phenomenal stories. Pick them up, definitely read them. You heard it, and and pick up Shrapnel. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a good recommendation. I've never. Time paging through a shrapnel ever. Heck yeah, read them all, buy them all. You know what I mean? All of I've them. I've got four stories in them now, so I'm happy. Let's get that number up. Introducing the all Jason Hanza shrapnel edition. We made him write 14 <laughs> short stories in three months. Who's all kinds that nobody makes it out? And he's just slowly going insane by the end. It's like, like. A psychotic screed <laughs> of, uh, oh man, that'd be. <laughs> well, you, you end it with a black marauder. <laughs> so, the Merlin, as already stated, is a mech that debuted in 3010 and was the first entirely new mech design to be developed in a hundred years. It is a design that, despite the original being rejected by its eventual manufacturer, Mountain Wolf Battle Mechs. Once leadership passed to a new CEO, the former son, the project was greenlit. This decision and this mech ended up being literally the saving grace of the company, uh, well, the company's Outworld's alliance branch, with a uh, juicy military contract with the then president, which profits from allowed them to rebuild the original Mountain Wolf factory that was once destroyed on Vendrell. The mech is a well-rounded 60-tonner for its time, sporting a Magna Hellstar particle projectile cannon, twin Martel medium-class lasers, a five-tube long-range launcher, and for those friendly infantry, a... Uh, Sperry Browning machine gun and get this Zippo Flamer. I wonder if they still market Zippo's wind resistance in the military units. Well, that's it for the Merlin. Yeah, it's sick. That's no that that's those those shrapnel stories are literally about how the Merlin is sick 
And it's literally about justifying its existence, <laughs> though. That's what's yeah. so funny. They're, people are like, what's the point of this? And they're like, it's cool. And uh, <laughs> But they demonstrate why. At the end of it, you're like, it is cool. <laughs> it's the first design to be developed in 100 years. I think it says that in the story. And that's a big deal because the military industrial bases of all of these different places have just been pummeled. And uh, this is a little beacon of light that that something new can even be produced. And it helps when it rolls out. and It's pretty cool. Now, I now, uh, Hansa, I'm going to assume you have put this on the board. I have not. So is there anything you want to talk about to it's like to kind of its role or like what it brings to the table? Uh, no, it's a great generalist. It's a, a durable mech. It's just an absolute beast. Uh, you know, throughout the course of the story, the thing does take a beating. You'll sit there and watch it just get hammered. I, but for this story's purpose, I really loved it because it's brand new and it made Rowan unique. It made her special. Even if she'd gotten a Marauder fresh off the lines at Cathill, it would not have made the same impact when she shows up. This 20-year-old kid sitting there saying, hi, I want to be a mercenary. And, you know, people be like, okay, whatever, kid. It's like somebody showing up now in L.A. that they want to act. But, you know. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> when she walks off the dropship in a Merlin, yeah. we're like, hi, come work for us. Because yes. <laughs> it's a feather in their cap. They didn't, you know, and I put that in there. They didn't really care anything about her. But they wanted the mech on their rules. I'd argue this this made the deal sweet because I'd actually argue she's at a disadvantage. Because people are going to want to deal with the political implications that she might possibly bring to it. And so I would actually argue that uh, this makes her interesting, right? Like, yeah, it makes her attractive to the mercenary units that have enough yeah. capital to be able to support a mech that you're not going to have spare parts for on your dropship yeah. already. But at the same time, your lesser known Merc companies where you could cut your teeth probably safer than taking big contracts <laughs> right out the gate, which uh, we get to see here. <laughs> so it's kind of like joining the big leagues right off the bat. Right. So that's that's the whole thing. She shows up on Galatea with the Merlin and she kind of has her pick, right? And so, but she knows about the Light Horse. Everyone's heard about the Light Horse. They're good. They're reputable. So she signs on with the Light Horse. Okay. And so oh, I did like this bit where Cynthia's family, the Paulsons and the Colonel, Colonel Winston's family, they're like, they know each other, right? They're friends. There's like a personal connection there between the Paulsons and the Winstons. So there's this whole system we learn about where like, so she signs up for the light horse. And so Winston sends her over to Cynthia, right? They bounce her over to the 21st because Cynthia's whole thing is she kind of feels them out, right? That's her thing because the Colonel trusts her to kind of feel people out. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are trash, Right. Because, oh, because specifically the light horse attracts a lot of like hotheads, noble kids, you know, uh, rich kids and stuff. And so, you know, the, we got to filter out the trash. So like Cynthia kind of functions as like this filter. Um, however, Rowan, uh, a diamond in the rough, right? She's actually pretty good. She can actually walk the walk. It, it looks like in her like 18 months here or whatever, the two have become friends, right? Rowan's actually, uh, not only does she have a Merlin, she's pretty good. And she's cool. We like her. You know, we like Rowan. Oh, now I now I do like this bit about her hair, right? Because Cynthia's down there. She's like helping her fix her hair. We see Rowan. Her, her hair is very particular, right? Shortish red hair. And it's like braided. There's like three braids. It's kind of like a French braid situation. I feel. But there's these like gold rings along the braids. And then they end in 
like a, a promissory clasp with like jewels on them, sapphires and rubies. It's this whole situation. She has jewelry in her hair. And we learn that this is because her parents are Gregorians, right? There's this religion apparently very popular in the Outworlds Alliance. It allows for multiple marriages to stabilize the Alliance's severe population decline. She's a Gregorian. This is interesting. Now, from my my little bit of research, it's specifically from one world. Am I am I correct on that? It's uh, Dorma Dane? I pulled the information from the Gregorians out of the first edition Periphery Handbook. Obviously, I went to the, the, the original ah. Merc Handbook. So I was trying to pull from sources that were like older to kind of get that vibe. And the, the first edition periphery book said an estimated 30, 30% of all outworlders belong to or support the Gregorian creed. But yeah, I think it does get kind of changed and retconned as it goes on because the, the religion essentially disappears from all canon. You know, I think that it was like mentioned once in this and it's gone. <laughs> so I brought it back. let's go dude that's what i'm talking about i like these little details though because i do feel like battletech it doesn't have the the same problems like ips like star wars do where it's like oh we've got tundra planet and desert planet but i don't feel like stories always kind of dig into what these local cultures are and whatnot so these little details i always love like eating them up when they come along thank you dude there's so much room for like cultural writing like that there's so much room for it it's battletech it's military science fiction yeah okay but also i do often think man there's a lot of room for cultural stuff that's kind of i you know i love it i'm i'm totally with you yeah yeah thank you uh, I, that's when i when i saw that i'm like i have to write this in because it, it's special it's unique it's right. neat right after a thousand years of course there's different religions out there and these religions might have different views on marriages than we do. So I loved, I wanted to weave it in. And totally. the, the idea about originally when in my head, she had a bunch of like engagement rings on one hand. But then I was sitting there describing her hair. I'm like, oh, what if yeah. the barrettes were her engagement rings and the, f- the number of braids shows her fiancés? And to my <laughs> knowledge, I mean, I, I've read a lot of sci-fi, but I haven't read every story ever written over 85 years. But barrette engagement rings, I think that might be new. <laughs> I, you know it's at least new in BattleTech, and it's if it's been mentioned in sci-fi before it's incredibly rare so i'm super ha- happy to kind of like introduce that into the greater sci-fi universe you know if if i die i guess you can put that on my tombstone wrote your replaceable engagement barrettes and, and kangaroos bring back gregorianism <laughs> Well, it hasn't come out yet, Kanan. <laughs> There's definitely a story to be written in Shrapnel about, you know, 150 years later in the, the modern era. What's going on with the Gregorians? <laughs> oh, that would be an interesting little story. Yeah. Yeah. I may have to write that down. Those are my favorite little, like, bits is when we, when you get those little, like, like, here's just a little thing about this little corner of whatever or they'll do like the uh the cockpit i really love the there's the little shrapnel entry about cockpits and they compare cockpits and inner sphere cockpits and they kind of talk about the different features and stuff oh i think that i think that's in shrapnel 11 is that in shrapnel 11 i think (laughs) well and i also think those details serve such an important role Because when we start to look at these factions, we can kind of look at them in the macro sense of like what themes they have. But then you start seeing all those little details within the worlds themselves and the small populations themselves that 
add that little bit of flair that could get overlooked just as the base, their successor state or future factions we meet along the way. You are correct. It isn't Trapno 11. <laughs> we already recommended it. We got to have it. Yeah. Buy, buy another one. Pick it up again. <laughs> so, so I'm super happy that this made it in, that, you know, that I was able to flesh out this little kind of corner of the Battletech universe and make it a little bit bigger, a little bit richer, you know, just a little less normal, I guess. Yeah. You love to see it. So Rowan's down here. She's got all the rings in her hair. She's hanging out with Cynthia. They're talking. And Cynthia tells her about, I got word that you'll be reassigned soon. Okay. That's, uh, she comes down here to tell her that Rowan got sent to Cynthia so that she could like kind of vet her, but now it's time for her to kind of like graduate. It turns, well, what really happened was Rowan did a really good job calling in airstrikes, right? That's what this explains here is that because she grew up in the Outworlds Alliance and all of her family's aerospace fighters, she's really good at calling in airstrikes. And so they did this like training exercise and it got cut short because her airstrikes were so sick that they just completely neutralized the opposition. And so immediately there was almost a little fight over who gets her and her lance or whatever, right? The commander called privileges like, no, I get her. And it's like this whole thing. Cynthia's down here talking to her about it. Like, yeah, so anyway, uh, you crushed it and uh, you're getting transferred out. And she's like, oh, that's sad, right? It's sad because they're good friends and uh, they won't be in the same lance anymore. They're not the same company. It is kind of cool that it's like, oh, she's like born to be a forward observer. She's so good. It's like a plot point <laughs> in this story. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it won't come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, <laughs> you beat me to it. It does feel like it's going to show up here soon. <laughs> I did like Cynthia can tell that she's learned a lot in her time with the light horse because she sees Rowan is down there sunbathing, but within reach, she has a pair of boots, a thermos of cold water and a pistol all within reach. And she's like, see, she's learning. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're talking about that. They're like, oh, it's sad. We're going to get split up. And they look in the sky and we see uh, diamond formations of stars appearing in the daytime sky. And Mech warrior Szynski, we hear broadcast out of his speakers. He says, hey, captain, they want you on the battalion net. Those are Capellan dropships. Okay, so we get kind of this first scene here is Cynthia and Rowan are talking, and then we see Capellan dropships appear in the sky. And they're like, oh, we got to mount up. Here you we go. You hate to see it. Like, yeah, dude, here we go. So <laughs> like, you know, before the Capellans arrive and ruin everything, we get this nice moment with Cynthia and Rowan here. A little slice of life. Before the Capellans are here. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I do like there's this little detail here. So we find out, she says to Battalion, give us 60 seconds to mount up, which I thought was uh, an interesting detail. That is not a lot of time. And I think it it's this little detail here that kind of shows the prowess of Eridani Lighthorse, the fact that they can uh, be ready. They're fast. Yeah, that, uh, that's, in, that's insane. <laughs> like 60 seconds. To be on the move, uh, they're ready. That's like right now. Yeah. They're doing drills, right? Like, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like within this the sentence you just said, they're mounted <laughs> up and ready to go. <laughs> they're in well, the well, her. You know, I mean, it's going to take a little bit of time for like Rowan to throw her cool and suit. Of down course, <laughs> fighting her bikini. But yeah, you know, it's, it's, they're they're fast. Wouldn't be the first time in Battletech. 
Not at, yeah. <laughs> Going back to its roots. <laughs> it doesn't take as long when you don't got to plug your hand in. You know? Pull the little, get the little USB cable out of your wrist or whatever. Yeah, you just got to wait for Windows updates. Yeah. He's got to update the firmware, yeah. That's a good point, though. You were saying earlier that you really wanted to make this feel like it was of its time in that, like, it, like early succession wars. And I think you have all these little details throughout the story that really do do that. It does feel like it fits right in with a lot of the old stories. Mission accomplished there, I think. I really wanted, and it's going to come up later in the, as we get to it, but I really wanted it to feel like if somebody did what you guys did, which is read the first three chapters of Mike's Sackville story, and then read this, it would almost be absolutely seamless. And then you just, you know, jump right back into his, into his book. I really wanted to feel like no time whatsoever had passed. Yeah, I feel like, especially as reading through this, it feels kind of like that bridging the gap between the Warrior Trilogy and the Great Death Trilogy. Like, you kind of capture a lot of elements of both of them. In the structure of it, it feels very natural that they're kind of within the same timeline. So we do a little cut here. We jump over. this. Oh, so... Also, this whole story is kind of sliced into these segments where we're kind of jumping back. We're over at Cynthia. We jump back to Colonel Winston, what he's doing. We pop over here. It makes it feel longer than it is. I realize when like scrolling through, I'm like, you know, this isn't like the longest thing in the world. But because you like, I think there's a good pacing to it. The way it's kind of like sliced up. It has this rhythm. It's kind of like, here's just like these five little snippets. That are just that form this. Uh, it's got a nice little pacing. We're always like jumping around. So here's our first. Well, we're, well, it's like we were in Hans's office. Short little thing. Boom. Then we get the thing with Cynthia and Rowan. And then we cut we cut over to Colonel Winston. Now. All right. We're back at the HQ. All right. I like. I think they. Uh, oh, yeah. They're like renting an office complex. I thought that was cool. They're like, oh, nice little uh, office park. You know, we'll rent it out and we'll just hang out here. They're honorable, you know. Of course, they're going to rent. They're good guys. Yeah, they're light horse. Yeah, they rented a business park. Yeah, they got a month to month lease. Yeah, we're in Samanon. All right, the city of Samanon. It's on Cowich, and we're hanging out with Colonel Charles Winston. He's standing over the hollow table, and oh, so this is where we get a little bit of the geography, right? You, you know, you teach us about the fish ribs. Okay, this is important. There are, okay, outside of Samanon ran four northeast to southwest ridgelines. Picture this. They call them the fish ribs. That's the local nickname. Each was about 30 kilometers long and had a one to two kilometer gap in the middle where an ancient dried riverbed split them. The first ridge was about three kilometers to the east of the city, and then each of the following three ridges were four to five kilometers apart, heading east. So it's these three mountain ranges, these ridges, there's a, a riverbed running between them that cuts through, and it's like these three lines on the map. This is important to picture the fish ribs. <laughs> To, uh, to, to really, though, to keep your visual when you're trying to yeah. imagine what's going on here. It's, a, it's all based around these, like, mountain ranges, the fish ribs, all right? The Capellans have arrived. Luckily, however, um, the colonel has some scouts to the east where he's able to observe the um, Capellans disembarking. It was just by chance, though, right? Alpha happened to be on, on a planned patrol towards the coast, which is how he had personnel watching a Capellan warrior house disembarking. Okay, so we learn that warrior house Hiritsu is here. 
I think we've like briefly mentioned them before, but we know the warrior houses, yeah, the warrior houses. They're part of the, they're kind of part of the Capellan military, but not like they're kind of separate, but they, uh, you know, they're beholden to the chancellor. It's the warrior houses. Okay. Hiritsu is here. They're unloading the drop ships and they're not alone either. They have brought the 42nd armored lightning regiment with them, a mercenary company. So, and this, so they're supporting the Capellans. Okay. I'm going to straight here because I know for a fact Jason Hansa has something to say about the 42nd Armored Lightning Regiment. Yes, I, this is a nice <laughs> deep cut uh, for all, you know, that, that, that one guy out there knows. But for everybody else, <laughs> in the City Tech box set, in the back of the instruction manual, the rule book, there was three pages of story. And it was a kind of an anthology. It jumped from camera view to camera view, camera view. A lot of people remember it because one of these stories as somebody re-armoring their mech using like chicken truck parts, you know, so they got like yeah. lard written across their mech stuff. Lard was the one that I, I was cracking up. I was like, oh man. Well, the 42nd Armored Lightning Regiment is mentioned in that. Now, canonically, those pages are t- uh, pretty much non-canon. The bar doesn't exist. The city doesn't exist. The worlds don't exist. Any, you know, but what I did was I lifted that unit out of that old and brought them into life. And, you know, I canonized them. And I, what I really love, I mean, if I can brag about myself for a second, the unit insignia for the 42nd, you know, I described it as lightning bolts in Roman numerals. So you can actually kind of imagine how cool it is. I get X, L, I, I, all in lightning bolts. And I mean, (laughs) so it's like blue on black. I did uh, their cobalt blue on black paint scheme with, I was like, these look cool. I actually thought that (laughs) Yes, when I read that. I, I really would like to actually write them again somehow. I, I don't know when or how, but I was going to ask you if there's any plans to do anything because if you use that little city tech story, they're kind of ruffians, which is kind of cool. It's it, it'd be cool to see kind of this group of kind of rough around the edges crowd, yeah, as a little mercenary company. I'd be interested in yeah. reading it anyway. Yeah, I would. In this story that mentions they fought on the they were on the Conus Combine front for about a ten years. Yeah. So there's a lot of funded stories to be told there. Mm-hmm. They've been rebuilding and they have acquired an abnormally high number of heavy warhammers <laughs> and thunderbolts. <laughs> and the colonel is like, oh boy, that's the opposite of really what you want. Yeah. We just get footage of them just pulling like warhammers and thunderbolts off the dropship, and he's like, "Oh God!" <laughs> I, I needed them to be a threat. I, I really needed because otherwise, the light horse. You know, I mean, a warrior house versus the light horse is a great story. It, it, it looks good on the table if anybody sits there and paints up the mechs. But the 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 armored guys, the forty second, had to also be a threat. The light horse had to be in and over their heads. You need to make the story work, right? Yeah, that's what the colonel realizes here. That's this little part ends with the medium weight light horse regiment was outnumbered, outmassed, and worst of all, out of position. And then we cut back to Hans's office where Quintus asks them, why were you out of position, Colonel? And they have to explain why they were out of position, which is, I uh, believe the Colonel says the intel they received indicated that the attack would come from a different direction. Cynthia's forces and the, the boomer company they were there to like to hold off the flank right they were not the main line they were not intended to hold off like an invading force which makes sense why the capellans would try and exploit that yeah they had bad intel yes their striker battalions are elsewhere 
And then this attack comes and they're not close enough to get there in time. This seems to satisfy them, this uh, explanation, which which I think makes sense. Well, who, who gave him the bad information? Exactly. Yeah. You know, think back three chapters, <laughs> yeah. who just died? Yeah, exactly. I like that. He, he, you see, you wrote something here. Yeah, we had bad info. Our battalions were positioned south of Salmonan to repulse an attack that never came. Hans threw a knowing glance at Quintus, who simply nodded. Right? He says that, and they both kind of look at each other. Like, mm-hmm, that bad intel. It's been going yeah. around lately. You know I mean? Got a case of the bad intels. The good news is the buck does seem to have stopped. I guess you think that they were like, was this our bad intel or was it Michael's? <laughs> um, yeah, there's like, continue, Colonel. This is the shortest little one. It immediately cuts back. It's yep. just this tiny little like, why were you out of position? It's, it's very comical though, right? The tone is like, oh, it's not comical for anyone involved. But it's comical, like for us outside of the story, like kind of looking into it. Yeah, because at first you're like, when we first see him meeting with Hans, you're like, something's off here. And then this one's the <laughs> like solidifies the idea of like, oh, we're in the principal's office right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like Quintus expects Hans to talk. He kind of looks at Hans, and Hans is just staring ahead, and he's yeah. So Quintus is like, <clears throat> why are you out of position? <laughs> so back to Kawich. We jump back to Cynthia, all right? They're all in the mechs now. They're all mounted up. She gets on a call with uh, Major Thalahi. Yeah, Plague Actual, okay? She gets on a call with Plague Actual. She's talking to Major Thalahi. That's her friend. And um, Thalahi, we learn, he has a different company of mechs. He's going elsewhere. He's going to intercept the mercs, right? Remember the 42... They have a whole plan going on. She has to stay here in the fish ribs and hold off the warrior house. He's going to cut around and try to, like, get to the mercenaries. Okay? And this is also the unit that Rowan was being assigned to, correct? Yes. She was supposed to be going up to his command lands. Oh, good point. Because that's the battalion commander. I was trying to strike a balance where the readers, like, you know, who don't have the Merc handbook open with them, can sit there and follow along. But for somebody who has the Merc handbook, they can sit there and say... I know where every unit is going. I know what they are all doing. This unit is checked off. This unit is checked off. You know, they can sit there and go company by company. So I'm trying to go for both fans, both like readers and then the people yeah. who really dig it. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know that one guy out there. <laughs> this story's for you, buddy. <laughs> you know, also with the source books, this battle is detailed in the fourth succession war book. Right. There's even the little you can see the little lines where the forces are positioned and stuff. Yes. The four succession war page blah blah blah. Ninety-two of the PDF shows the town and the final two fish ribs. I pushed out more fish ribs, just it seemed natural. And you know, and also they kind of flesh out the story. So what you see there is what's going to be when we get to it, the final battle. You know, this is like the, the where the warrior house is. The mercs are about three, five kilometers behind them, so they're off the screen. You know, they're just off the screen, you know, conveniently. Um, <laughs> but yes, this, if you sit there and you start comparing companies and you start reading again against the line, you'll pretty much see where every company is, you know. So again, it's for those guys, that guy. Yeah, that's actually me, though. I actually pulled this up and was looking at it. Well, it's actually cool. There's, there's legitimately a map. Of the of the battle with like little yeah. arrows on it and stuff, you can actually see where everyone is, and, and you can see why I call them fish ribs because I really didn't know how to describe those. I mean, hip bones, <laughs> you know, femurs. 
So I went with fish ribs kind of like, you know, because I figured they kind of run out and they're running towards a lake, you know, so I figured people could picture it. Having not looked at that particular battle, I can say that the fish ribs, it immediately paints a picture in my mind of what the terrain looks like. Okay, great. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I also like how in just a few paragraphs down, you kind of explain that there's like a fishing industry yeah, involved with it. So it does flow into that like, oh, the locals could call it that without any craziness behind it. It would make sense. I was waiting to get there, but yeah, no, I thought that was the cool part is tying those two together. And it really flew kind of the culture of uh, this planet a little bit, uh, or, or at least this little town, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, it's kind of a fishing village. So they're going to, you know, they're going to use fish stuff in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. A lot of fish references. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This town does seem chill though. <laughs> Hang on, Samanon. Seems all right. Okay. So Major Fowlehy. Yeah, the battalion commander, he goes off. He's got to stop the mercs. And so, good hunting. I'll see you later. And then we jump over to a new character, all right? We're introduced to Captain Lila Oakwood. Mm-hmm. So she is, she's the recon force, right? She's the one the colonel was talking about. She's part of the scouts out east. They're watching the Capellan forces disembark. You know what's funny, though, is that she wasn't really supposed to, she was only out here to fish, Right. She wasn't, they weren't (laughs) intending to be out this far east. It seems to have been this little security control that they were like, we're going to route ourselves towards. Yeah. Towards a good meal. Yeah. Towards a good meal. And it's like, we're doing two birds with one stone. Right. Unfortunately, it seems karma came a knocking. Yeah. The only reason her company was this furry was because they'd expected to patrol into the coastal villages for some fishing. Instead, she was going to be the first light horse ground commander to try slowing down a combined arms regiment. Lucky me. Yeah, I thought this was funny. (laughs) It's a bad spot to be in. This line, though, immediately endeared this character to me. I immediately was like, I like this girl. Totally. Right away. It's like, oh, there's some likability here. Yeah. There is, though. You're right. This is some, I've, I've like read some whole books where I'm like, man, I didn't like any of these people. You know what I mean? <laughs> and right here. See, it's not that- but that's what I mean. It's like literally like it, this is what I mean about the density here. Like immediately I'm like, I'm on her side, like right out the gate. Just want to catch uh, some I'm fish. like, all right, Captain. She's <laughs> Captain Leela. Like, let's go. So they're out here. Her company is split in two. They're hiding up on this ridge. Right. And there's like a forest behind them. But there's like some open land. They're up on this ridge. Oh, she calls artillery down. On like some infantry, right? It's very funny. She's like, Max, they're hard to hit. Uh, hovercraft, they might go rolling off. She's like, if you want to do some damage, I'm going to call artillery down on the infantry. You know what I mean? And so she calls in. Troops in the open. Yeah. She calls an airstrike on the infantry. And everyone's like, oh. And like it explodes. <laughs> they all start running. Of course, the hovercraft start to cut around. To try to uh, get up behind them, right? That's that's the whole thing. That's so she's like watching the Capellans respond to the chaos, and uh, she she notes very doctrinal response. You know what I mean? Very uh, very predictable. She gets the slip on them because surprise, (laughs) they all have motorcycles, right? I I like this detail you laid in here of the pre-laid coordinates because any unit worth their salt when they're kind of setting in the defense is going to do these things like help increase the defense. And so they've already placed mines before any of this happened and they have pre-laid coordinates to where they think 
the enemy is going to come from. And I think this like further little detail of show not tell that the Eridani light horse is this uh, unit that is highly competent. In artillery, if you sit there and you just want to fire at something random, it's going to take a little while to get the guns laid in and sit there. You're going to have to justify it. you got a bracket. you got a bracket and walk it in. What's much more effective is beforehand, if you sit there and you they call them known points, you sit there and you designate and then you, you the guns will shoot, shoot at it until they hit it. And once they know how to hit it, they've got the exact bearing, the exact azimuth, and this exact breeze, they lock it in. And then when you're sitting there doing a call for fire, you can shift from known point. You're like, shift from known point one, up 300, you know, left 300. So they automatically lock in from the known point. They know what their guns are laid. So, yeah, that's, again, for like the veterans out there, I, you know, I try to really use doctrinal terms. So they're like, oh, this writer, you know, at least has looked at an army thing once in a while. <laughs> well, you know, taking a second to walk back to writing this story. I originally screwed up. Uh, Lila was going to be hammering them essentially the moment they landed. And then I double checked the range of long times. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so I had to actually wait for them to get closer. I would written myself into a corner and I had to write myself back out. So, <laughs> so it happens. <laughs> that Tom ain't long enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't. Because I'd already laid in all the distances between the fishers and how far the lake was and where they're landing. And then I looked up how far long times could shoot. And I'm like, oh, Boomer Co- Company's not close enough. Well, if I may, um, about the doctrine, something that's important to me, this is just me as a writer, and I will not speak for any other battle tech writer, period. But for me, unless I'm very specifically writing about a unit that doesn't know what the heck they're doing, I try to make them make smart choices. These are professionals. These went, everybody there either grew up in a warrior house or went to the Capellan Academies or grew up around mechs. You know, these are professionals. They know what they're doing. So I I don't say they're not going to make mistakes. You know, they'll make bad choices. They'll go out bad information. But Capellans do what they're supposed to do. They start shooting. They rush the ridges. They they sweep the flanks. They're obeying doctrine. The the warrior house is not stupid. And so that was why I really wanted to write that in. I mean, Lila outsmarts them. She outfoxes them. But the Capellans did everything right. That was kind of what I wanted to touch on, actually, is uh, is that Simes being that rigid actually kind of makes you bad. Yes. Not unprofessional, right? Clearly, in order to, under duress, to... Uh, do exactly what you need to do to fulfill doctrine requires a high level of discipline, right? But the adaptability to react to happening and to understand the enemy's reverse engineering your tactics and to to kind of change on the fly there, I would argue that's the difference between a highly trained non-veteran unit and a veteran unit, right? Uh, at least in kind of Western combined arms doctrine and other countries do things differently in, in a modern context. And even kind of in the, the eighties when Battletech was being written, there was a lot of like kind of Eastern troops that were much more rigid. And that was kind of a conversation around military circles about like, it was kind of an East versus West thing. Definitely. And so I think that's interesting. I think seeing that from the Capellans, I think it fits. Well, especially some of the information we learned from Stackpole and the Warrior Trilogy about these house units where they fight their way 
in a lot of situations. There's not a whole lot of the from the top orders given. So there at on a light horse, being able to reverse engineer a plan from one of these house units makes total sense here. And they did everything right on paper, but it was still right. thwarted by quick adaptive actions. Exactly. Motorcycles. <laughs> who, who could count on motorcycles? Motorized unit. Um, it's in the book. It's in the book. <laughs> motorcycles, dude. That's the whole thing. They call down the artillery. The hovercraft try to come around on them. They're like, nah, dude, we got motorcycles. They all jump on motorcycles and start riding. They're trying to escape into the forest. It's cool. The hovercraft like come around the ridge. They haven't quite made the forest yet. It's a cool shot. And they're like, go. And then the hovercraft come around. You, you think they're like, oh, no, they're not going to make it. And the hovercraft run into a <laughs> minefield and the mines explode and like several hovercraft explode and you're like dude not only did they have motorcycles but they drove them <laughs> through a minefield and uh it's so cool it's it's so cool yeah. it's really cool i was unreasonably hyped for a motorcycle chase scene in this story for real, I was like, this is really cool where they drive the motorcycles through the minefield yeah Oh, now, so, so this wasn't her whole squad, though, right? Remember, they were split up. So we check on the squad to the north. We see, you know, okay, how did those guys fare? They didn't do as well, right? The mines didn't catch as many hovercraft. There's like a little bit here where it's like, oh, what happened up there? And we see that they were up against Saracens. And she's like, oh, no, not Saracens. Sporting a 10-tube long-range missile system and three twin short-range systems. Those things can throw an unholy amount of high explosives and infantry units. That's what it says. An unholy <laughs> amount. And uh, they got tore up, like straight up. She's like, how are you guys doing? And <laughs> it's not like the commander's not even there anymore. <laughs> it's like, report. It's like, this is the lieutenant. Yeah, he's, uh, Taurus is dead. A lot of casualties, ma'am. Uh, we need a medevac. It's, uh, yeah, they got messed up. The Saracens tore them up. It's very sad. So it's not this whole clean getaway her half makes a makes a pretty clean getaway but the other half doesn't they they actually take some pretty bad losses it's, it's actually kind of sad for that one guy who has the pdfs open and is reading along the story this is the moment where they should start realizing wait a second hans is no longer following the book so because one of the named characters dies yeah <laughs> but in the, the four succession war four succession war oh, operation repost you know, the Iridani Light Horse only lost one warrior, Colonel Winston, and collapsed. Only lost? That's what it says. That's the official, written by Dr. Banzai. Wait, wait. Written by Dr. Banzai. Commissioned by Hans Davian himself. Yeah, it says that. It says that there were no casualties. This is a make... Why would it say that? Why did Banzai write that? Yeah, but the infantry, right there in that moment, they, you know, seven KIIs, 21 wounded, give or take. Weird. We might have a conversation about why... That weirdness exists later on in our story. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Brent would usually say that. <laughs> oh, and I did like when like when a Battletech player sees a Saracen come out, you know, you got your battle, you got an awesome or even a Merlin or something like that. And the Saracen comes with a 10 tube and three SRM twos. You're like, okay, he's going to hit me for a little bit, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill him. But for this infantry company commander, she's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> they are way out of their league. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's like a monster when she sees it. It's like a horror thing. It is. She's like, Saracens. <laughs> no. And uh, yeah, we got tore up. And those are some of my favorite scenes in Battletech. Because when we are thinking about mechs on mechs, things like an LRM5, LRM10, or SRM2s, you can look at them and say, I can tank those for a couple rounds. I'm not too worried about them. But once you put that perspective back onto the ground, 
just it with somebody with boots and a gun. Yeah. It, they, all of a sudden, all of those things become terrifying. And I think that's always so important to cut back to every once in a while. And just remember that <laughs> there's really scary. That's what's so annoying about mech warriors <laughs> right up in their high horse. They're so annoying. They don't, you know, in a battle, most people aren't in mechs. You know that, right? It's like most people aren't in the giant machine. It's that dirt pig propaganda. Yeah, most of us are down here like fighting the war, you know? And they're they're shooting like lightning guns at each other or whatever. (laughs) I rarely don't look at it. I'm a former infantryman myself. That's why I love this little scene that you open with, Lila, is uh, because you're right. they're, They're squishy here i mean it's bad enough dealing with all of these uh all, all of the vehicles and and enemy entry and then you have these giant two to three story mechs wandering around it's not what you want <laughs> so that's the bit with lila she tells her squad of the north you guys get medevaced you know you guys take care of yourself we're gonna withdraw we're gonna they gotta keep running though because uh they're being pursued they can't stop moving at this point so we jump back to cynthia Okay, she gets a call from uh, Mighty, you know, Road Warner Actual, Mighty Actual. This is Major Samuel Perro. They call him The Rock. He's got an imposing stature. Actually, Mr. Hansa, I wanted to point out, at least in my copy of the EPUB, it says imposing statue. And I'm like, <laughs> I think it's supposed to be stature. So I actually, I literally, this isn't like a call out. I just wanted to ask, is my copy like wrong? Does he have it? Or does it say statue? And I noticed that the voice actor said statue. Okay, I'm sorry. I just, it's a thing I noticed. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I was like, I just noticed it. And what I, was I the was, intent? That's all. Uh, stature. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's all. Let's see. Let me, let me double check here. See, yep. Statue. Yeah, there should be an R in there. I'm sorry. I'm not an editor. <laughs> That's all. For his imposing statue and his willingness to use battle mech lances and anger. Okay, we got this guy. This is Samuel Perro. Is he from the source book? Yeah, Major Rock Perro is listed on page 73 of the uh, the handbook. He's got a great description. He's 30 years old. He's a handsome black man, always interested in armored vehicles. And he fell in love with a liaison officer from the Federated Sons. And Major Green Davian, apparently their LNO, uh, transferred her to nip the budding romance. So he's got a huge grudge against that. Oh, no. Oh, no. So, yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I like, so this little bit, The Rock calls Cynthia, and uh, we learn, one, they're good friends, right? They've been, he's a, he's a military kid like her. He's been around the light horse. They know each other well, okay? The Rock calls his friend, and he calls to tell her, though, about Lila. Okay. Lila's having trouble. She can't get out. She needs help. Okay. She's got two platoons and APCs heading towards you. There's hovercraft on her. They're dropping smoke, but they're running. So we call Cynthia. Lila needs help. She's heading towards you. And so, um, Cynthia's like, all right, people, we got to help Lila. And so then we cut back to the HQ. We go back to Salmanon. Well, actually we go back to Colonel Winston and he's mounting up in his battle master. Right. This is where he tried to command the battle from the HQ for as long as he could. But now, you know, it's time to get out there in the field. Things have gotten dire enough. We do learn, however, that the 42nd to the West has been contained. Okay. So the threat to the West seems to be contained. Things are going fine over there for now. Fallahi seems to be doing okay, or at least 
that seems to be working out. Falahi should be able to take care of or slow down the mercs in the east. However, House Hiritsu still coming, right? Still coming through those fish ribs. All right, we don't have an answer for the warrior house yet. So we get this whole scene, right, where Colonel Winston mounts up. He's in the battle master. And uh, what has he got with him? He's got his command lance, his security lance, and a reinforced company of armor they called Tin Can Company. I like this. They start talking about <laughs> Tin Can Company at this point. And I love this part, though, where him and all of his guys, they go out through the city gates and then they lock the gates behind them. Okay, leaving only an infantry company to guard the city. He's got 17 tanks and eight mechs weren't enough to stop a warrior house, but it was all he had. And that's it. Okay, and then at this point, it cuts back to Hans's office. Boom, Avalon City, March 3rd, with Quintus leaning over, asking the colonel, why didn't you consider the idea of fighting in the city? And General Armstrong tells him, well, we prefer not to fight in the city that puts civilians at risk. That's only something we consider as a last resort, he says. And I like Hans Davian just kind of like narrows his eyes at him and he tells him to continue, right? Continue, Colonel. <laughs> I want to know if you're willing to put it out there. What do you think Hans thinks of this? I think Hans knows the score and that sometimes you got to do dirty deeds in the city. Uh, you know, I think he's sitting there thinking that the, the smart play would have been to pull everything back. In Hans's brain right here, this, this was not the smart play. The smart play would have been to pull everybody back into the city and hold until the other battalions show up. He's right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think yeah. I kind of presumed <laughs> as well. But this little paragraph, I threw this in here because that would be a question that somebody who didn't see the PDF, didn't know that there's an eight, a 40-year-old book out there. That would be their question to me. Jason, why didn't you have him just fight in the city? So I, I felt the need to, to, to answer that question that a, a reader might have. And also, I, needed, I wanted a moment to sit there and throw out that we pronoun a couple times because it's going to come back up. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I feel so. like this is very Eridani Lightwork, though. I think it plays into the character of the unit that they were unwilling to do that. And I found this whole interaction, like, I was like, this is gold. Right yeah. here. I, I, I felt like it does so many things in in literally these three three to four sentences. Well, and I know when I was reading it, right before we do the cutback, I had the same thought of like he is now leaving the HQ where all the information is being fed into and he's able to relay orders out of, and now he's hopping into a mech and just running out. And I was like, that seems crazy when yeah. you're trying to pull back people and consolidate. <laughs> But then you throw in this, just this little line in there about we prefer to avoid putting civilians at risk. And I realized like I, at that point, as the reader, got caught up in the battle idea as well. And I wasn't thinking about what happens after the battle. And I think that really strikes it in and nails that theme of it. They do have to go out a giant door that is then locked behind them. It's like a walled city. <laughs> Uh, it does seem like a good defensive <laughs> position, come to think of it. You would think. So, yeah, but it, it it very much shows the difference between how the light horse fights and how Hans Davian, who came up through a house militia, you know, he came up through the army. He never expected to be the, the leader. He's a soldier first and foremost. He has a certain way of thinking, and yeah. they have a certain way of thinking. And the this is one of those moments where it doesn't match up. Yeah, the difference between 
the person who started the war and the people fighting it. I feel like the things are as they should be. This is the proper response from Hans. And I, I it yeah. feels these, everything feels in line with the characters. It's an argument where both sides are correct. <laughs> I reread Mike's book a lot, you know, just to make sure I got Hans correct. It shows. If you like Jason Hans' stories where the values of the Aridani light horse kind of conflict with practical realities, <laughs> I would recommend Innocent and Defenseless uh, Mercenary Tales Volume 2. That was actually the first story of yours I read. It's a banger. What a way to walk in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you do want to see some ELH city fighting, that's the book for you. Pulled <laughs> cool, into that one. Yeah. And the title implies, you know, that they are indeed, it is, it's about this Aridani light horse moral dilemma. It's great. They're always involved in moral dilemmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. So why don't you fight in the city? We don't do that. Okay. So we jump back to Kawich. Can we take one pause for a second? And with the, uh, yeah. yeah. What's up? With Lila, major failure, you know, Plague actually has mentioned that he, she's dropping smoke and HE behind her. Yeah. In my first draft, I had, had her dropping fast cam, which is fuel artillery scatterable minefields. And continuity's like, um, that's not available in 3025. I'm like, <laughs> 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 I forgot. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a specialty munition. It doesn't appear until like 3050 or 3075 or something like that. So I had to fix that. But yeah, I was like, what do you mean it's not available? It's available now. <laughs> it, battle tech. <laughs> battle tech. <laughs> so yeah, cont continuity caught that one. That's so funny. And then we jump back to Cowich. Okay. We're back to Cynthia. This is where this next little part, Cynthia now meets up with Lila. All right. I do like this. We see Cynthia pulls up with her company. Okay. Oh, and you know what? Help me out here. Mr. Hansa, especially in my head, how grassy is the terrain. I know it's at least a little, I was like, how deserty is the, uh, I was kind of flipping through a different, I was like increasing the grass level in my mind. You know, <laughs> as I was, and I was like, what's, the, what's like the grass level going on? What's this look like? I think I'm feeling like it's still very dusty, right? We're getting grasses, but it's very dry grasses, right? So it's very plains, deserty kind of, uh, but not like you know, red rocks, not like, yeah, not like it's, no, no. it's not Tatooine desert, but it's, you know, it's more like Arizona esque no. kind of a situation. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I was seeing that right. Arizona. Yes. Yeah. It, it, the grass is like, like, you know, ankle high and like tan Yeah, probably, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, that's why she had to put the, the beach blanket down. You know, then it's rocky and gravelly. It's not sandy like a desert. Yeah. That was kind of the vibe I was going for is more Arizona, not Tatooine. Totally. Okay. Not Tunisia. Exactly. Not Tunisia. <laughs> so this part's cool, though. Cynthia pulls up with her company of mechs, right? And we see Lila's hovercrafts and all, all of them come, like, screaming through the wall of smoke, right? Because now we're in the middle of the valley. There's, like, you know, and they've been dropping smoke and stuff. And they've been running from the capellans. It's cool. I really like this. Well, one, we learned that the surviving members of Alpha had escaped north out of danger, but also out of the fight. So remember those guys that got hurt? They're out of the fight now, but it's okay. They're safe. They got medevaced. Just so you know, they're not on the board anymore, but they did get away. Okay. And it's cool though. Lila and them come like roaring through the smoke and they're, they're like still dropping smoke. It looks totally crazy. They can't see anything. And I do. What, what was this bit though? I like, they're on like the radio with each other, right? She's like, Lila, this is Cindy. Drop some more smoke for us. That's right. And we'll hit them when they come through, right? Drop even more. It's, it's fine. And I do love this though, right? As she like drives by as like, 
I just like the shot of all the battle mechs standing there and all like the smoke and stuff and all the APCs are like driving right next to them and like right next to their legs and stuff and Cynthia looks down and she sees like Lila pop out of the hatch you know and like wave at her as like all the APCs go by and it's like cool we got it and it's cool so now they've like hooked up and uh, Cynthia's here to protect Lila so that her people can get away and she pops out of the hatch and waves at her I'm like cool cool and Cynthia's in a trebuchet I think I said it at, at the beginning but it it should yes. be restated. She's in a trebuchet. A classic. This thing's probably old as heck. So Cynthia asks Lila where she's heading. Lila tells her they're going to get up high, right? They're going to get up on the second to last rib. We're going to get high. Calling in fire for Boomer Company. And Cynthia tells her, cool, I'll send Avalar up to you. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. That'd be cooler, whatever. So again, we're like, oh, she's going to send Avalar up there to like spot for them. And I'm like, yeah, that's that thing we talked about. She's a great spotter, right? So, uh. All right, here we go, though. This is where we, like, really get into it, okay? Imagine this smoky, deserty valley. Cynthia calls in the smoke drop, right? She's like, drop the smoke on us. It's cool, right? And you can tell there's, like, battle mechs approaching. And, oh, what's that? Oh, first we see Savannah Masters. I do, yeah, you, you like, you, like, wrote in here, like, oh, these, like, Savannah Masters pop out. And they immediately, like, see what's going on. And they just drive back into the smoke. And like, oh, it's a bunch of mechs out there. Yeah. Uh, Making little mouse droid noises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me and my medium lasers aren't going over there. Yeah. <laughs> because what the play is here. Okay, right. Cynthia wants them to drop smoke, but time it out. We're going to engage them and then you're going to drop the smoke to like obscure vision and then we're going to try to like withdraw or whatever. The dude doesn't even really he's like, "Are you sure?" and he's like, "Just trust me." Right? Trust me on this. She's making a play. She like she like calls in the smoke. You're like, "All right, cool. More smoke." So, this is where they engage. Right. The enemy battle mechs, the Capellan battle mechs emerge from the smoke. It's like a whole company. Right. There's like 12 of them. We get a real like line battle. They're like pretty close at this point. Right. Because vision is so obscured. Right. The smoke has done its job. It's about to get nuts. For mechs, it's basically a knife fight. It's brutal. Yeah. It gets wild immediately. Yeah. Immediately they engage. I mean, what's going on? We got we got trebuchet throwing 30 missiles at a Phoenix Hawk. We got a Whitworth in here. We got Ralph Goodson in a Whitworth. I missed the Whitworth. Yeah. There's this a Whitworth just shouted in just the middle of the paragraph. He's like, shout outs to the Whitworth. And I'm like, heck yeah. And, and uh, what? Rowan just, blows a, a Stinger's leg off with the PPC. There's a, there's a sweet little battle here in the desert. Just like all the dust. Very dusty. Very smoky. Oh, I like uh, when she sees, when Cynthia sees Rowan blow the leg off, she's like, you know, that's pretty impressive because Rowan's gunnery is like average at best. You know what I mean? I'm like, so what is that? Is that like a, you know, is it like a three, a four? Probably well, about a five. At, she's. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? She's Which, uh, she's, a, she's a, some, probably somewhere between a four and a five. Yeah. Dang. Dang. Yeah. So yeah, really good at spotting bad gunnery. Right. So that was a yes. really good role on the uh, PPC hit. However, they start taking losses, right? These two wasps go down. Cynthia calls in. It's like, hey, pull back. And it's like, mid dead. PPC to the cockpit. And you're like, oh, no, not the wasps. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. two wasps go down. As wasps do. Uh, yeah, yeah. CLB starts <laughs> taking its toll, though. A stinger explodes. It's getting nuts. Yeah, yeah. The wasps go down. Cynthia's like, no, not the wasps. And I do like, she's engaging this Phoenix Hawk, right? She kind of has this little battle with this Phoenix Hawk. They're going back and forth. It's got that large laser, though. She starts to get messed up, though. Like, like by the end of this short yeah. engagement, her armor has been melted. That's a scary for a trebuchet. 
Yeah. yeah. That's not what I would want to be doing. <laughs> Getting shot? <laughs> well, yeah. generally yeah. you try to not do that. But I mean the uh, Phoenix Hawk on the trebuchet. Yeah. Luckily, the Phoenix Hawk's heat, I think, is going to hurt it in this fight. So uh, it gives the trebuchet a, a fighting chance. For uh, that guy out there who busts open the, the record sheets, <laughs> Wasp only has four points of armor. So a PPC will take its head off <laughs> for somebody counting out the damage. <laughs> that was something I had no doubt about. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a PPC yeah. to the wasp fed. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> the Merlin is, is heavy though. Sturdy, heavy Merlin absorbing a dozen missiles in the PPC strike. It's taken hits, but it's still standing. However, Cynthia's trebuchet is messed up, right? She takes the large laser. She gets hit with the PPC. She's melted. Right, she's down at the structure. It's bad. A stinger explodes. There's just starting, they're like, we got to start <laughs> pulling back. And that's when the smoke high explosive rounds come in, come screaming in, boom, and, and then the smoke goes off. And immediately she's like, fall back, go, go, go. And everyone starts like running as fast as they can. It's like as soon as the smoke hits, right? So they manage to slip away though, right? Like by the time the enemy mechs peek through, they're like several hundred meters away from them. They called in. A fire mission on themselves yeah. right Isn't that and cool? uh in this it is and and they were kind of like are we sure about this and it's like yeah we'll be out and so they call this mission with it's a smoke he mix so the smoke is kind of their trigger to get off the x and they start rolling the, the he there is to keep the phones uh honest you know because if you're just dropping <laughs> smoke you're gonna keep walking through yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you, you kind of mix and match there yeah. give them something for their money you know yeah, exactly. keep, them, keep them thinking, you know, don't leave just the Savannah Masters, the one turning around. Give them some company. Exactly. So they get away for a minute. Cynthia calls the colonel, Colonel Winston, right? Uncle Chuck. Cynthia calls Colonel Winston, tells him that she bought him a few more minutes, but she lost two mechs in the process. OK, so she can't do this forever. It's pretty desperate. It's funny. They have this little conversation where. Well, when he tells her to fall back and repair and rearm, right? He's got some teams up on the ridge. Everyone's falling back. We're all going to regroup. We got some ammo for you. Come on back. Good job. But then privately, she asks him, hey, are you okay? Are you doing all right? And he's like, oh, you know me. I'll tough it out. And we get this bit where Cynthia's like, family's going to kill you for being out here. You know, you really shouldn't be out here. And this is where we learn about the colonel as a CPR machine in the cockpit with him because his heart's not so good, right? His heart don't beat so good these days. And so uh, his wife, who's part of the field hospital staff, that was interesting, and his daughter, Ariana, installed a CPR machine in his cockpit. Yeah, the wife being is, I think, also in the Merck handbook. Oh, really? I believe so. I believe it mentions his wife. Interesting. Does it mention his daughter? Uh, Yep. One of his daughters is a mech warrior, the other is a historian. Only his family's doctor and General Armstrong know that his heart is failing. So, yeah, he's been married for 30 years to a physician and machine. He had, he's 63 as of the Merck's handbook. So he's probably a little bit older by then, by my story. Interesting. It says it right there. So, yeah, he's got two daughters. Just like it, you wrote, very few people know about his problems. Cynthia was one, as well as General Armstrong and his doctor. So the colonel has some heart problems. Not that many people know about it. And he's got a CPR machine in the cockpit. Interesting. It smells a bit like foreshadowing. Yeah. Oh, and don't forget about the yeah. don't forget about the tingle in his left hand as well. It says that. He's, right. He's literally right. Yeah. That, that's the feeling. other clue. It yeah. does. He's got that old feeling coming on again. 
<laughs> I think you smell what I'm cooking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it might be like the stress of this situation he's in. And so Cynthia is aware of this. And so she's talking to him like, hey, are you going to be all right? He's like, oh, I'll be all right. You know me. And she's like, hmm, mom would be pretty mad. And he's like, oh, I'll be fine. Right. Um, we'll see. So then after their little conversation, we immediately cut back to Lila's people. Right. Remember the last time we checked in, Cynthia was going to send Rowan over to help Lila. Right. So it's funny. That's what's going on. We just like immediately cut over and all of Lila's people are sitting there. They're all like looking over at Rowan. Right. And she's like gotten down out of her mech and they're just like mech warriors. Huh? You know, it's just this funny thing because, you know, she looks kind of crazy just in terms, you know, what, right? They're all in camo and stuff. And she's out here in like a, you know, she's got her like bikini with the, with the bright red, with the jewels and the rings all in the hair and stuff. And they're just like, oh, I didn't expect the lady in the Merlin. Um, shout out to Dan Eisenberger, uh, one of the Battletech writers. I, I shoot him uh, DMs all the time asking about German language, I, you know, when I want to capture something perfectly. So, he, he's the one that gave me this word. Ah, the word. So you should uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The word uh, is Ernst theft. Is that a... Uh... I don't know how to say it. <laughs> I like he says it with some safts, though, I, I imagine. And uh, it's, it's a German word, as you said, and uh, it means serious. But he kind of uses it as uh, seriously. And I thought this was a cool little detail. I wanted to point it out. Like I said, Dan... I asked him for a word that used, you know, some like seriously, or are you kidding me? Some sort of expression like that. So this yeah. is straight from Germany. <laughs> from- <laughs> the first thing you see is like this guy and he's just like Ernst right? mech warriors. And then the camera pans over and it's like Rowan. They're just like, what the hell? So Rowan has joined Lila. Okay. She's here to spot for those airstrikes that they were talking about. I like this bit though, where, yeah, they're all looking at her. And she just stands out because, yes, stood out against the brown scrub with her pale skin, red hair and jewelry glittering in the sunlight. They're just like, what the heck? And I like she does this sick. She like slides down the ridge. She like slides down to her and is like, oh, my God, get over here. And she like what she like hands her a beanie and pulls out the brown, you know, like the face paint. You know, like the camouflage she starts going paint. to town. Yeah. Squirting yeah, yeah. Everywhere. She's like, oh my God, they can see you from orbit. <laughs> You're killing me. She's like, close your eyes. And she just starts like greasing her up with the, with like, with the paint. I like, she like runs out of stuff. She's like, I, I, I don't, I don't have enough of your legs. You know, and like she looks down, she's got these long. Oh, infantry. They only cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're used to it's just hands and and only really your the front of your face. <laughs> face, yeah. 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 So yeah, a, a tube of grease paint can go a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Not equipped <laughs> for an arts and craft project here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I like the camera pans down. She's wearing briefs and like these long, pale white legs. She's just like, oh my god. She's literally like, we'll we'll, we'll just put you behind a rock or something. That's you know. That's, that's a shout out to all the vets for Emery packaging. <laughs> because Emery's listening. You know, put this on a rock or something. So the good news is she'll be useful if they need to signal for help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the fires are lit. Needs aid. Yeah. yeah. I like when she goes to put it on her legs, Rowan's like, mm, normally when someone wants to goop up my legs, they buy me a drink. Lila thinks it's so funny though. She's like, <laughs> so noted. It totally works. She thinks it's funny. They're having a good time. 
Oh, okay, given yeah, the okay. situation. He, yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> it's charming. So they're like, all right, cool. So let's like crawl up on this ridge, right? So we can do this spotting. So then they, they both like crawl up the ridge. The two women scurry up the ridge, often on, on all fours before they finally crawled into position. And so, and so they crawl up there. Um, they just look so crazy. So she's like, what are we doing? Well, currently they're directing fire for the long toms, right? We're directing fire for the long toms. At regiment, boomers displacing. I was, I was keeping track of the battle. You know, for that one guy out yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. On page 77 is the other long toms at regimental headquarters. Yeah, because boomer, times. remember, they were parking oh, okay. there. Okay. So boomers retracting. Right. Yeah, boomers picking up and, re- and displacing. So thunder is now taking over the fire missions. Yeah, there's like probably one okay. artillery guy out there who reads this story. It's like, oh, this all makes sense. But, you know, yeah. that, that's for him. <laughs> it's cool, though. They they like crawl up to the radio guy. And then Leela's like, all right, let's see what you got. And she hands it over to Rowan. And she's like really impressed, right? Rowan's like, yeah, give me that thing. She's like, Bomberly, this is Rowan for standby for attack patterns. And Leela's like, oh, okay. All right. All right. And Rowan, like, you know, she calls it in. That's her whole thing. She calls in this airstrike. Oh, you know what's funny, though? She calls off the smoke, right? I do want to provide a little context for our non-veteran listeners, which I imagine are fewer than than I imagine you'd expect because it is Battletech. <laughs> but for those of you out there, it doesn't seem like talking on the radios that big of a deal, but it is a a skill being able to be curt and concise and remembering the in the military you have to use kind of this pattern in way of talking and you have to be Kurt, and you have to remember all of these call signs, and it is a skill. So the fact that this warrior just like walks up here and starts controlling the airspace, it's probably a shock for this radio operator. Yeah, she crushes it. Yeah, normally you get assigned like Air Force people to do this for you because it's, right. it's a process. You, you, have, you have to call in, you have to direct the planes, the planes have to spot you, spot the targets, and you want to direct them in during different azimuths. Like you sit there and say, okay, come in from you know, 0900, okay, we see you. It's a whole process using the pro words. And here's how the target's marked, like mm-hmm. designating by laser or smoke or azimuth i practice it as an artillery lieutenant like once in clint training you know i would not feel comfortable trying to do it you know <laughs> yeah so, calling off the smoke is also because you know big sky little bullet is not a great plan <laughs> when, when she sits there and says that there's an infinitesimally small chance that a round will hit the fighter it has happened in history so when you're calling in air support generally you either call off the artillery fire or they fly down directly Certain spaces, like rectangles in the sky, the artillery computers will sit there and fire over or around the rectangles so that your fighters can flow through it. I wrote that into a different story, uh, you know, way back when with the uh, the fifth cruises Lancers. So it's kind of making a callback here. But yeah, this is real stuff. You know, artillery is physics. It, it's trigonometry. It's not magic. But you also have to work around it. Yeah, she calls off the smoke. Right. She says, the Lila's like, oh, you don't want the smoke? She's like, I don't want the smoke. Just let me call the dudes. It's fine. Oh, she does promise, though, right? Rowan promises Lila. She's like, check it out. They disable less than a platoon on the first pass. First round's on me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Lila's so into it, though, right? She's like, oh, first round over dinner and dancing. And Rowan's like, you're on. It's cute. It's clear that there's been some tension prior to this, that maybe the dire situation's uh, allowing them to be maybe a little bit more honest with each other is kind of the way I, I read it. Uh, you have... Correct me if I'm wrong. It's Rowan. She's a hot commodity. <laughs> and what happens is, you know, Rowan calls in the airstrike. 
smoke starts to dissipate and she's like, oh, here they come. And then the jets come screaming in, right? It's oh, okay. It's sick. It's like, it's like eight arrow fighters. Okay. Four each from the North and South. And they make this like crisscrossing this perfect precise. She's timed it out like flawlessly, right? It's like this incredible airstrike. They come in like right over them. Uh, I think it's like, she almost felt dizzy as she stared down into the cockpit of an 85th Shylon, right? They like come in right over them. It's like this, uh, it's sick, right? Yeah, they're below them. They're, they, they're <laughs> lower than the ribs. This is nap of the earth. Oh, right. Yeah, it says that, right? Looks down at the uh, good point. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's She kills it. I guess that's the whole thing. She calls it in so good, though, right? It's perfect. And she does. Down the valley, five hovercraft are immobile. They just destroy these <laughs> hovercraft. They crush them. I did like this. And then, yeah, it, when Lila, she's, it, she's like, heck, hell yeah. She's so hyped about it. She's like, forget dinner and dancing, you know? I'll wipe you up. Oh, that's right. She's like, dinner and dancing, I'll, I want to marry you. And Rowan tells her, that's fine, but uh, you're fourth in line. And she points at her. Oh, yeah, she's literally, she has like a, all these suitors. She's going to have to add new braid now. Yeah, it's funny. I love this. This was clever, right? You put this thing in this. It's like, yeah. it's like oh, I'll. I'll wipe you up. She's like, get in line. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah. I was into it. Very funny. Thanks. I'm glad it worked. I, I, I really am. I, I didn't know. I'm like, okay, is this too cheesy? Is this too goofy? I think it is a little hammy, but I think that's why it works. Is because in those, like, people that are in those, di- you know, it's like you're looking for any little piece of hope. Yeah, It's a little place to vent. Exactly. And so I think that's what makes it work. Yeah. And you did a bunch of groundwork to get it there, too. Right. That too. It isn't out of the blue. Yeah, I love these two. You, st- you these yeah. like two characters, yeah. and then they come together and they ca- they call in this airstrike, and they're so hyped about it. They're flirting. It's cute. I love these two. I really, when I was like this, uh, this scene's great. It is, and you're like at the end, you're like, yeah, dude, she called in that airstrike. She called in the <laughs> heck out of that airstrike, and that isn't a thing that normally, you know, that's not. It's that's like the what she does here is like she's really sick at calling in airstrike. <laughs> And I'm like, that's cool. She, she made a whole that's, exercise end early. I mean, I, I did, this wasn't, you know, magic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's her power, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. She brings the rain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she drives a Merlin. She gets engaged. She calls in airstrikes. <laughs> engaged while engaged. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> so we jump back to Cynthia. Remember, she was back there. She was getting repaired, refitted. Well, she didn't have a lot of time, right? They got them all reloaded. They've been working on the repairs. Unfortunately, it's time to move out, right? And so I specifically, the repairs are not done. All of her mechs are only about half repaired. Okay, so unfortunately, we're out of time. She's got to send her lances out. Actually, uh, what's this? there's this whole thing here. She's talking to Colonel Winston. He tells her he wants her up on the ridge, up high. Actually, I like this. They get in like a little thing where... She's like, what? I, you know, I got the heavy lance. I should be down on the bottom. But he's like, no, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to hold you up on the ridge. All right. And we're going to pin him in place, right? Here's the plan. They're going to be the hammer, right? We're going to hold him in here. And then you guys are going to come charging in and like hit the flank. You know what I mean? Military stuff. Classic. <laughs> because luckily help is on the way. Okay. Seventh striker will be here in 30 minutes. If we can just hold out for a little bit longer, it's going to be all right. The other ELH forces will be here soon. 30 minutes is a long time. (laughs) That's a long time. (laughs) We'll be here soon. It's a lot of rounds of battle tech. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, 
Not in our, not in real time. The, uh, the <laughs> yeah. game. Yeah. yeah, that's one round of battle tech. <laughs> <laughs> so they all head out. They're taking positions. I do like the part here where you talked about the hover APCs. Okay, we got extra wide vehicles designed for riders to ride the dirt bikes directly up the ramps. We got these like dirt bike <laughs> ramp APCs that you can just ride the motorcycles onto. And you wrote that here, <laughs> and I was like, "That's cool." I, it, it made me think about it. It seemed cool. <laughs> so we're getting ready for the final battle everyone goes out they get in position rowan is back she's back in the merlin she comes up to where cynthia is all right we can see the enemy forces out there right cynthia calls in to say that she tells the colonel we'll have company about 10 minutes okay so this is the final stand they're almost upon us oh now this is where the rock right mighty actual calls the colonel and something's gone on over there, right? He calls in. He's like, hey, we're down by half. We're trying to fall back. And then he gets cut off, right? There's like this burst of static. He gets cut off. And Winston's like, oh, no, what happened? And then another guy calls in. He's like, hey, this is the lieutenant. The captain's down, right? They're everywhere. He's freaking out. He's like, they're everywhere. And I'm in, I'm, I'm in charge now. I don't know. You know, they're chasing us. Clearly, like, where the, you know, because they were out there dealing with the mercenaries, right? Clearly, something has happened. We thought things are going well. Maybe they're not going as well as we had hoped. So the colonel's like, "Listen, lieutenant, it's gonna be fine. Start falling back. Come back to us." Like he says, "Fall back in pairs." By the book. Oh, this is where he calls Roadrunner, right? He calls Rowan and asks Rowan if she can see from where she is, because she's on her Merlin. She's on top of the thing, and. I mean, she tells the colonel like, oh, uh, barely, not really. They're like really like kind of out there. Right. But the colonel gives her authority to call in airstrikes. Right. Basically, just like I like he says, hit it with the bomb, have thunder bounce the rubble. What is it? Uh, by the way? Uh, yeah, that's right. I meant to ask about this. Why does he say bounce the rubble? <laughs> when you hit something you've already hit. You know, you, you've already leveled it and you hit it again. You bounce the rubble. That's what I, I was, was like. Oh, I, I, I like that. I like the sentence here. It's like, hey, would the bomb have thunder bounce the rubble? So yeah, they're just going to bomb the crap out of them. So that's what that's going to Thunder's the artillery. So they're going to bomb them and then they're going to drop long times on them. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Bomber squadron hits them and then thunder bomb hits them again. I think that's called adding insult to injury. A little salt and pepper. Yeah, it's called not having a good time. It's seasoning. <laughs> Burning those support points. Yeah. Just dropping cards on the table. Yeah. At this point, the Capellans are almost upon them. We've lost a lot of people. Things aren't going that well. It's looking like a final stand kind of situation here going on. I like, we got, they're on like the valley floor. I like, it's not even like this well, this like great position. It's kind of just like a bunch of large rocks and boulders it's just like, it's like, they're not in a great position. The warrior house is almost here. We still got the bomber squadron. We got the artillery. Oh, actually, now this is interesting, though, because he is, he's calling in the bomber squadron, right? And that's when someone calls and says, hey, all seven guns are up, right? We do have the artillery available. The colonel, he's like, oh, we got all seven guns. Wait a minute. Hold on now. All seven guns. <laughs> and he's, but then he, he gets the pain in his arm. Oh, like all seven, like. And you're like, uh-oh. And he's like, smack. He's like, not now, not now. And you're like, oh, here we go. It was only a matter of time, really, right? I mean, they put a defibrillator in this man's mech, in the Battlemaster. It's funny because uh, 
There's actually, I feel like there's enough room in the Battlemaster cockpit for for a defibrillator amongst all the other <laughs> like electronics. Enough, enough room to bring a medic to sit there and zap you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, a point of contention. Well, not a point of contention, because but you know, fact check checks his stories. And fact yeah. check guys, those, those those cats are smart. They're they're smarter like all four of us put together. And so I got back into the notes that like this is not how defibrillators actually work. You know, then you know, like you know, in order yeah. to restart his heart, blah blah. I'm like, I don't. I'm like, I just need a widget. Okay, this is like a thousand years in the future. I need whatever the heck they use on ER or Chicago Hope. I just you know, <laughs> so called like the or the zapper or something like that. Yeah, the original was called later, but you know, I had to rename it just then to make it more science fictiony. I'm like, <laughs> I, I see. It's 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 a widget. I just I <laughs> now so I would say yeah. when I read it with it being you know it's not going to be a paddle unit, but they're having something that had you'll have a lot of them like your standard AED unit. Yes, it's an EKG. No, no, no. They'll just have two stick points that you'd stick on top of the chest with like two diodes. Yeah, and then you just yeah. hit okay. a button. They're not big. They're very simple to operate. They make them pretty idiot proof. But I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, that that follows along with that. Yeah. Yeah. I just couldn't call it a defibrillator just you yeah. know, to be technical. But yeah, that's yeah. exactly the thing in my brain that the thing you see at hospitals and airports now, bright green, you know, idiot proof. Yeah. Sorry, we're getting way off topic. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Oh, we're <laughs> we live in the weeds. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was a good catch by fact check. But Phil backed me up. He's like, OK, we just need, you know, a plot device. This isn't, you know, Jason's right. not writing, writing medical stories here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, he's got a thing in the cockpit. Will it help? Who can say? Uh, so, however, this is where, I mean, this is it. The final battle begins. We engage. Winston raises handheld PPC. C- cataphract comes into range. He fires. Okay, we're shooting. All right. This is it. This is a mech battle. However, when the battle does start, we do call in that bomber squadron. And the six fighters come in by pairs, wingtip to wingtip, crimson lasers and cobalt PPC blasts chewing up the Capellan line. It's sick, dude. The jets come in. I love the jets coming in in this one, though. I love it when I do. I love it when the air fighters come in and do strafing runs on mechs and stuff. It's clear these Aerodani light horse pilots are clearly hot. Like they're just been doing work the whole time. Wingtip to wingtip. Yeah, they're killing is them. pretty wild. Yeah, they're so they're so good. Yeah. You think Rowan's sitting here watching it going like, well, maybe my family has a point. <laughs> oh, right. And this is don't forget Cynthia was up on the ridge because they're gonna bring her down. She's gonna flank them. And that's exactly what they do here. I mean, this is all part of the plan. They they engage, hit them with the bombs, hit them with the jets. Here comes Cynthia. She's coming down the mountain. Now, okay, but like Colonel Winston is getting messed up, right? I think at this point he's engaged with this cataphract, right? I do like, because eventually, yes, the Highlander, right? He's in the battle and he feels his chest tightening up, his vision starting to gray, and he sees this like Highlander come out of the smoke, right? There's like this whole thing and he, he thinks like, oh, that's the enemy commander. He's in the Highlander. And so they're like, they like start to duel Right. He starts fighting this Highlander and, <laughs> a, you know, a sharp pain st- stabs through his chest. And he's like, why is my battle master falling over? Oh, and he's just like he has a heart attack, of course, in the middle while he's fighting this Highlander. He And then the battle master falls over. Not a mech I want to fall prone in front of. 
by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the Highlander's known for this little trick, you know, the old Highlander burial, because it's an assault mech, an early assault mech. Now, there's a lot of assault mechs that, that come to have jump jets, but early on, that's not so much the case. And uh, yeah, this Battlemaster laying here is going to become a juicy target. Yeah, getting hit with the Redburn special. <laughs> he has a heart attack. It's like, oh, we're going to have a duel between the two enemy commanders. And he, the one guy is like, oh. <laughs> that Highlander <laughs> pilot must it have falls been over. confused for a second. It feels like a reverse, you know, in Indiana Jones, the gun versus sword gag. It feels like the opposite of that gag, right? Where it's almost like there's two combatants that are ready to fight and one just kind of topples over. Yeah. The other one's just like. Wait, what? Uh, Wouldn't the opposite of that gag be the sword guy stabs the gun guy? That's true. But that was the thing that came to mind first. I've been called out. (laughs) But imagine though, somebody pulls you at gunpoint, like, ah, stop. And then you just knife them like, ah. That is the opposite of that scene, right? That is true. Yes. Yes. Um, Listen, as he's falling over, though, he's like, Cindy, take command. Uh, and that's his last words. And then he dies. It says that Cindy take command. That was his last order before he died. And that's because the source book in the source book, it <laughs> says though, if you had read the source book, we, we gotta, you know, he's like chomping at, we gotta let him. That's what it says. <laughs> yes. <it does>. So <laughs> when I first started writing this, I was very confused on how I was going to write a good story and only kill one person. Because I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can, I guess I can injure a bunch of people or whatever. Yeah. And then I discovered that is the theme of your stories. Not is usually killing more than one. Yeah. And so <laughs> I'm sitting there doing my research, and so I, I pull the the Iridani Light Horse stories from the Task Force Serpent out. I, I want to say it's by Gressman. and in there he mentions about uh, Ariana Winston's family. And you know, she, she, she's sitting there looking at a picture of her parents, and her, her father survived until 3053. He used to go on marathon runs with her. I'm like, huh. And because also, the Battletech process, the editorial team is, when in doubt, the most recent publication is accurate. So the older publication, so this one was technically wow. 93. The source book was 88 or whatever. It's like, okay. So I shoot a message. I want to say, I can't remember if I shot to John or Phil. I'm like, okay, I have a problem. I ran into a continuity landmine that nobody's noticed for 25 years. I'm like, I can fix it. <laughs> and I, I have a couple of ideas. Either A, it wasn't him in there, and there's like some sort of imposter thing going on. Okay. And I'm like, or B, this is an entire cover-up. You know, I can tie it back that there was bad intel, linking it back to Michael Hasek Davian. It's a huge cover-up, and that I can kill a whole bunch of people. You know, this, you know, it's a whole giant thing. And they're like, go with plan B. Because it, it's, it's easier, honestly, you know, but that's yeah. also Hans Davian was never in this story to begin with. The story first, when I started writing, began with Cynthia fixing her trebuchet, you know. So then when I had to go back and write is the cover up, it's, you know, I sat there and rewrote that introduction scene and started punching in. I think it's a better story for it. But, yeah, it's because of continuity. Oh, so, yeah, I, I had to fix having the Hans Davian layer of them in the office, just it completely, I'm trying to imagine it without it. I think it just brings so much. It brings this layer of tension over all of this, which is not normally what knowing some of the outcome does like, because we do know three people at least survive. Right. Well, and this is actually funnily enough, 
me and Brent were having a conversation before the recording about this, about the story format, because this battle has a lot of moving pieces in it. There is a lot of ground you cover. And by adding in that sit down aspect, sitting down with Hans Davion, it feels like a debriefing. So running through a lot of that information quickly, like you've done here, plays so well in the debrief format. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what this story would look like if I hadn't had to change it. I don't I would have made word count. So but yeah, I'm on when fact check said I couldn't use the defibrillator because I'm like, well then he can't die. I'm like, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess he passes out or something. I'm like, that line I, I've changed it, but it sucked. And then Phil, you know, Phil came in and said and said, No, I, I see what you know, I see what Jason's going for here. I'm okay with making a magic science fiction widget from the future for a thousand years. I'm like, cool. Nice. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and you've consolidated this continuity. He error, did it. Right. He uh, saved Battletech. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's like a technicality that it's like, oh, you know, he died. Yeah. He did. Yeah. die. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Well, not really. He's dead now. Yeah, we literally just ran <laughs> off. He's dead now. So no one noticed that, like that whole time. No one that you he were he. No one noticed that. Uh, it's like oh, he says he dies in the old book, but then but then it says he didn't. Nope. And fans are quick to note that stuff, and like they'll post it on the forum in the errata account. You know, you know, as soon as like a birthday is wrong. Hey, this says that she's eighteen, but you know, by this source book, it's actually she's nineteen. You know, what is That's wrong? What How's mean. the error? So yeah, it, yeah. Had, had somebody noticed. <laughs> I'm sure they would have mentioned That's it. incredible. It, he noticed. It slipped through the yeah. cracks. Now they can just post about how his daughter's irresponsible for taking a man with an obvious heart condition in marathon runs. <laughs> and that's good to know. That means that he that he actually goes on to live for, you know, another uh, like 20 years or so or, or uh, however long you said. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. And, uh, also, in, <laughs> yeah. in the Grissom books, he was listed as very skinny, like real thin because he's a runner. But in... Another source, I can't find it. He was listed as like a large, hefty yeah. man. And then I'd gotten a copy of Randall's story. Randall writes a story directly ahead of mine, and he was using that same source. I'm like, okay, well, Randall's writing it. That's the, the remember what I remember. I'm like, okay, I'm going to ignore the, the skinny Winston. Since we're already in a sidebar, you, when you're doing this and you, you're kind of like writing alongside other offers what level do you guys collaborate i would love to see more collaboration and cgl is setting up systems like you know just you know i'll sit there and like i shoot down a note you know hey i'm trying to say this in german you know and he'll sit there and fix it for me stuff like that or i'll ping like coming up here about the the, the cockpit you know i sat there and asked i can't remember how i asked i sat there and said does anybody remember how these cockpits move i'm like how do these things open and one of the fact checkers is like it looks like this, and you can see it in like this artwork from like 1987 or whatever. So it was harder years ago. It's getting better because the technology's gotten better. For this anthology, I was shooting notes. Like I got a copy of Randall's story before mine was done. So I was able to sit there. I shot a note to Dan Eisenberg. And when I was sitting there talking, we reviewed each other's stories. And so I loved his story. Failings in teaching. Oh, yeah. And that's the one with the guy who's really drunk. Yeah. And I loved his story. You know, I gave him some notes. He gave him some I nine. And I actually stole his character, the uh, the girl, the cadet who graduates and joins the light horse. Yeah. 
I stole her, promoted her, and she's in my second story. Oh. So she makes it appear she's a battalion, she's a battalion commander. So there was some coordination going on between some, but it, some not. So I think any new anthologies that might come out, and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not being subtle or anything like that. There's nothing on deck. Um, but <laughs> in the future, if, if there is another project like this, I think the stories will be interwoven and, and they will be great for the fans. I, I think we'll, awesome. we'll, be, we'll all be, I think we'll all be pinging each other and weaving threads in and out and characters and stuff like that. That's exciting. It is. It, it makes it fun because again, I'm a writer and I'm a fan and I, I want to give back to the fans. I want these stories to be good for the fans. And so, you know, being able to sit there and work with others and collaborate, <laughs> it's wonderful. You know, I, I, we, we have a lot of good people on staff. I mean, not only good writers, but I mean, they're just good people. And so when I get a chance to work with them, it's wonderful. I love it. CGL is a great team. And we got a bunch of good freelancers. I know it sounded like a paid show thing, but it's it's true. No, 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 no. <laughs> but little we've interacted with CGL. That is kind of the feeling we we've gotten that they're all they're all good people and they all care a bunch about what they're doing. Uh, so, I mean, honestly, everything you're saying yes. seems to be in alignment w- from what we've seen. Oh, yeah. It's it's incredible to walk up to somebody and at CGL and start a conversation about Battletech and watch them get as excited as you are about the conversation that you're having with them. Yeah, like like Gen Con is too stressful for a facade. Okay, nobody's <laughs> play acting Gen Con. Nobody can hold character for 96 hours. The, the, the people you people you meet when you walk up to them, that's the real them. Yeah, that'd be cool though. If you, you yeah, if you like traded characters between stories. You're like, oh, this guy's character shows up in this stuff. I'm chill with it. I th- yeah, I, yeah, I like that stuff. Yeah, that means you guys, you know, people can use your characters though. <laughs> but yes, <Right>? they're <laughs> It is inevitable, yes, right? It it absolutely is. Um, like Rowan shows back up in the wreck guides under the Merlin. You know, she shows up as a, a pilot. You know, so somebody wrote that, and and I don't know who. I think might have been Eric. But anyways, you know. But yes. She's out there for everybody to use. And theoretically, somebody could throw her into a, a pool full of piranhas or something like that. And there's not a word I can say about it. I'd be like, dude, that kind of sucks. I wish you'd have ran it past me. But these are not my characters. Right. I feel like it's a double sword. There's some beauty in like just in out there, though, too. It's a back laser. It's, it's a bit of a back laser. <laughs> That's the, the double-edged sword. <laughs> I don't yep. Sorry. Really? Hey, back lasers can be yeah. clutch. <laughs> Sometimes. I like a back laser. <laughs> what about a back blazer? Is there, does anyone, is there a back blazer? Yeah, it's our local blazer boy rep. <laughs> blazer boys rise up. See, I'm, I'm legally obligated. To... <laughs> There's a dozen of us fans. Welcome to Blazer Town. I didn't learn about blazers until I'd yep. been into Battletech for like five or six years. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, they're rare. Yeah. He's like, man, you can, I can put them over a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. I have a headband made. <laughs> we got to get back on topic. guys. <laughs> My wife is not going to listen to this one. The topic, the topic was Colonel Winston's death. He has a heart attack. He hits the ground. The battle master topples over. Cynthia sees this. No, Uncle Chuck. And what happens is 
Cynthia pilots her trebuchet over to where the colonel is. She sees the uh, battlemaster go down. All the while, Rowan is like singing over the frequency, directing the airstrikes are raining. You know, bomber attack now. It's all this crazy chaos. And it's just, I feel like slow-mo Cynthia goes over to the battlemaster. And I think it says she lays her trebuchet prone. Right? I thought this was interesting because you're like, oh, of course, yeah. that's what you would do. You would lay down and you. she lays her mech down next to his and she climbs out of the trebuchet. Okay, you knew this was happening. <laughs> and... um you know, climbs out of the trebuchet, goes over to the battle master, right? And like you get this little scene where she has to travel between the two mechs. But and so she's not in the cockpit of a battle mech and having to travel across the active battlefield while it's like it's insane, right? There's literally a mech battle happening all around her and like bombs are dropping and lasers and she's just gotta like scurry across and get over to the battle master. That little paragraph there, I think it really sucked me into the page. Battle she'd learned long ago sounded incredibly different on the ground than from inside her cockpit. The closer roar of missiles and the whip snap of lasers cutting through the air or was loud and confusing and terrifying when not wrapped yep. in the safety of her trebuchet. And I just, I can like feel... Like from this, I feel like the the change in pressure as she gets out of her cockpit and she like whips <laughs> off the neuro helmet and and the neuro helmet was probably even like to some degree muffling the noise. This is what I mean. In the movie, you you change the sound mixing, right? You like turn yeah, it up exactly. You, you increase the sharpness, right? You get you you get the yeah. You would when she takes the helmet off. It's like yeah, it goes from being muffled to being like terrifying. That little paragraph there yeah, it evokes like, all yeah. of those yeah exactly those sounds the the change in sounds and the feeling of being it's like safety is gone and and for like I imagine it's only a it, you know it brief period she's scrambling and trying to get the battlemaster's cockpit open and uh, and it's just this meters. like and it's just super cross. intense the whole way and i think that that little paragraph like really hammers that home so she runs over to the battle master and you know of course she remembers the daily emergency access code right every light horse soldier do they get so they get a new one every day yeah isn't this cool i mean this makes sense this is the first time i've heard of it i actually wanted to know are you pulling this for something or is this a detail you added i know i've seen it before in other stories but don't hold me. I, I don't know. Sure. I can't. Just but no, I've seen, I know in other stories where people sit there and type in, I want to say maybe Cassie yeah. Southern had the, uh, you know, the technician code that she popped open a mech once or something. I mean, I know I've seen it before. I, I just can't cite my sources, <laughs> but no, I didn't make this up, but yeah. Um, and like the past it makes sense. And, yeah. Cause they have to be able to get in there. They have to be able to get into the cockpit, but you also don't want to just use the factory default. It's like, you know, battle mechs are like servers. You don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to just use one, two, three, four. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a couple of them out there. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Oh, I'm sure. Zero, 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 zero. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They got it on a post-it note right next to it. <laughs> well, I don't know how well he that post-it note would, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He yeah. did right next to it. Yeah. So she opens up the canopy. She gets in there. She feels for a pulse. No, he's dead. He's dead. And she's like, okay. So she goes for the jolter. Yeah, that's right. It's called a jolter, everyone, by the way. She grabs the <laughs> jolter 
and she jolts him. She does. <laughs> Plays paddles on the chest. It takes when you say it like that. Yeah. And uh, she hears faint breathing. He's alive. He's alive. She jolts him. She jolts his heart. So he doesn't die, right? I mean, we established that earlier when he appeared in the beginning of the story, not dead. (laughs) (laughs) She saved him. (laughs) So there's another detail here that he talks about that uh, Aaron felt this one coming, I'm sure, when he... When he read this 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 paragraph, okay, here it comes <laughs> transparasteel. Okay, you know that there was no way I was getting past like this one was getting past me. Okay, and yeah. uh, I had never heard of term, but I think it's brilliant. But uh, uh, yeah. uh, again, the same question. <laughs> okay, yeah. So you didn't see it on Sarner, right? No, I did not. Did you try Wikipedia? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then went past me, went past the editors, got past his fact check. Yeah. You squeezed one in on him. Yeah, it bit Battletech, it's Feral Glass. And Star Wars, it's Transparency. Are we complicit? Oh, no. <laughs> like our... That's what I... I, I uh... calling the police. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Catalyst is going to have us austin. <laughs> <laughs> A season desist from Disney. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a complete accident. Um, yeah, just I messed that one up, and it, it, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of sci-fi out there. Brent's always ready to ask, "Is this Lost Tech?" <laughs> I was gonna ask. I was like, "Is this?" I was like, "Is this some kind of new?" <laughs> it's. I was excited. I yeah. was like, "Oh, <laughs> oh, it's it's Lost Tech from a long time ago." <laughs> <laughs> I do. I get excited anytime there's any little bit of material science in BattleTech because. Uh, but the thing is, is sci-fi when you're writing, especially a big IP like this, that's you don't want to kind of get into the details on how all of the you you know you want vague how the tech works. Because you want to leave you know the our reality and future to kind of fill in those gaps so that it it can make more sense <laughs> in hindsight, especially when you, you, you know, you want this intellectual property to last a long time. Yeah. And uh, so I understand why they don't, but I love every time they do. So I was excited to hear about Transpiracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, you know, it just, it happens. <laughs> of course. He got him. <laughs> so... He's alive. Heart's beating. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. Except she glances over at the monitors and notices a giant explosion gleaming from every display. There's in the time that she had to, she took off all of her stuff. She's not, you know, she's been busy doing this and she's like, there appears to be some kind of giant (laughs) explosion, question mark. And she gets on the radio and she's like, she calls Lila. She's like, hey, the colonel's alive. What just blew up? And then we cut back to New Avalon, March 3rd, 3029. What a beautiful cut. Yeah. <laughs> Flawless. It cuts to Quintus asking, so that part was accurate. You did die. Winston nodded. Yes, sir. <laughs> the room was deathly silent before Paulson said, but he got better. The joke fell flat. It turns out the first prince isn't into Monty Python, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So Quintus asks, what blew up? And Paulson tells him, 
a Capellan dropship. So a Warrior House Gazelle tried to make a run for it. 85th shot it out of the sky. So they shot down a dropship. 85th is cooking. <laughs> Interesting. Specifically a Gazelle dropship, which just to set the picture better in readers who might have not realized or not looked it up, the, a Gazelle dropship is an aerodyne. It's not like a. It's not like the bulbous shapes like like the Union or uh, Overlords. It's specifically a armor and infantry dropship, correct? I believe so. I believe. Apparently, the explosion was this aerodyne dropship. So the eighty fifth shot him down. That's interesting. I wonder who told them to shoot down the dropship. So Hans actually asked that exact question. That's great. Who gave the orders, though? And I, I, I like this. They kind of look at each other and they're like, "Well, it's 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 so telling that they that they give like a like a non answer, right? When when they explain, <laughs> well, you know, that has and I was busy with this and uh, you know the colonel's company was pushing in and uh, the tin, you know, they were sniping and uh, you know the dropship got shot down. It was crazy. <laughs> it really does have that energy of everyone in the room. It's like, what answer is going to make him the least mad? Yeah. And he's like, okay, who gave those orders? But the fox is the fox, right? They are in his trap. Oh, yeah. No, you realize he's 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 had him pegged from the beginning. It's like since before they walked in the room. This was their fate was sealed. You know, it was already too late. It's like, I've enjoyed the little fun story to this point, and now we're going to get to the thing that I brought you here for. It was really, it turns out it was all rope from the yeah, beginning. it was all rope. <laughs> <laughs> so he asked him, so uh, who gave those orders? And I like, General Armstrong's like, well, uh, you know, uh, in the Light Horse, we like to encourage initiative from our junior leaders in <laughs> situations with the... Chain of command, Honda's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's great. Me too. But also, I, I pulled the comm chatter and the logs. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've checked the receipts. <laughs> I've already read before you yeah. guys came in right. here. I read everything. Which is probably not... All right. Not what just, you want to no. hear, right? Hans just generally <laughs> motions over to Quintus. It's like he's here. Yeah, we know. He's like, so you guys were injured, okay? Colonel Winston, you were literally dead, okay? Major Paulson, who was in command? You know, he's like, who was in command of the Striker Battalion, First Army Infantry Battalion, and by extension, the entire Eastern Defense of Samanon? Right? Yeah. You know, your mission? Man, when you put it like that... Uh... Who, was, who was? Who was in charge? And Paulson tells him, I was your highness. And I'm just like, hmm. Hmm. You were. Hmm. Okay. He's like, okay, you were. I love this, by the way. This is, he's like, he's like, who was running the defense? Because if I was a betting man, and he glances at Quintus, and then Quintus looks over to him like, but you are a betting man, sir. And he's like, you're right, I am. You yeah. know that he yeah. made Quintus say yeah, I know. that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Which is the... <laughs> he like looks at him, he's like, say the line. Like, say the line. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> And he's like, now what's in my junk drawer? And he opens a drawer. He's yeah. got like a whole performance. Now he's just playing yeah. coy. He's like rifling. He's like, hmm, pens, yeah. flimsies, a pistol. Let's see. And then he's like, oh yeah, this. And he pulls out a grip. He's like, I'll bet a quarter million pounds. And oh, it's like a, oh, 
But okay, actually, sorry. From his drawer, he withdraws a flimsy. <laughs> so, what's a flimsy? <laughs> Little thing. <laughs> it's a flimsy thing. I was like, oh, this isn't. We haven't talked about flimsies. Like an overhead. Like a transparency <laughs> thing that you print out, I assume. You know, I, That's what yeah. I, that, you know what? I kind of thought the same thing. Yeah, kind of bluish and plastic-y, sure. yeah, you know, sci-fi-ish. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I was thinking of that. That I was, I, I'm, we're yeah. on the same page. Yeah, he gets it flimsy. Well, I was like, is it, I was like, is it like that or, or, or is it like a disc? Is it like something that you would, that would be read by a? No, no, it's, it's some sort of, yeah, some sort of, you know, like I, I in my brain, I imagine like, you know, those transparencies that overheads, you know. That you'd sit there and shine light through. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, he's rummaging through his junk drawer. He pulls out a flimsy. Oh, forgot this was in there. He tells them, I'd bet a quarter million pounds <laughs> and a title to a forest moon with, and he like looks down at it, like puts his reading glasses on, <clears throat> a growing <laughs> logging industry and excellent sport fishing versus everything in your pockets that the defense of my storehouses was in fact being run. By a wet behind the ears mech warrior from the Outworlds Alliance. So you realize that Hans realized the whole time that they're all standing on chairs now with rope yeah. around their neck. <laughs> they all regret carrying cash on them this day. What has happened is that it was Rowan Avalar who must have given the order to destroy the dropship, right? Or was it this is what I was going to talk about here is that. The dropship was destroyed. Technically, Paulson was in charge, but she was helping with the colonel at, at that point. But someone must have told those fighters to destroy the dropship. They wouldn't just do it on their own. They wouldn't just shoot down the dropship. And you're like, oh, it must have been Rowan. Because she was commanding the fighters. She must have just been like, destroy the dropship. They were already taking orders from her. You know, she was already directing the fire. She just directed the fire. She just told them where to hit, except that she's not an officer, right? She was literally like a new <laughs> recruit. So basically a low ranked mech warrior ordered the destruction of a Capellan dropship, which I guess worked out. I mean, <laughs> she, she had tasking authority. Colonel gave her tasking authority over all fires, yep. and she she had the eighty fifth. She, she was essentially a battalion commander. She had two batteries answering to her and an entire company yeah. of fighters. Yeah, she was essentially a colonel. Yeah, she was calling them in. That's <laughs> what's so funny is that as like at, at the end, it's just her like <laughs> raining hell on everything. It's like yeah, and she the the, the dropship gets destroyed, and you realize that Hans, when he read the reports about what happened there, he was like, "Are you serious?" Right. That's what ha is that he was like, oh, "Really." He was like, call those guys, call them, get them in here. He's like, somebody get a flimsy in my desk right now. Get them in here right now. Right now. Yes. Yes. The man circuited them, them back. Yeah. yeah. You don't pay yeah. that kind of money and live in the middle of a war. Yeah. Yeah. And you nailed it. You guys are talking about the rope and stuff. He knew the answer mm -hmm. to every single question he asked. It, it, yeah. He had it all. The very first thing he does, they, you see him do, they walk in, they sit down. Puts all the flimsies on his desk, yep. and he says, "Begin." He has it all there. He knows everything. It's the very first thing you see him do, which is on brand. Yes, this was again immediately after giving the press conference about Duke Michael's death, and then talking to Morgan. He then yeah, he had a meeting <laughs> with these three officers. That's where he happened. uses the Socratic method to destroy them. Just, he's having a bad day already, 
right? That's <laughs> what's so sad about this. They picked such a bad day to show up, right? <laughs> That's tough. That's tough, right? They could have got him on a better day. Is all I mean. This was a, he wasn't in a good mood. I like this. Where okay, so Hans goes on to explain. I mean, he's like, let me be clear. All right, I'm not angry at Rowan Avalar. Okay, in fact, in fact, he has sent her an invitation for her and and a plus one to come visit him personally, so he can thank her <laughs> and extend to her an AFFS lieutenant commission for any posting she wants. Which is essentially always like, oh, this is isn't this like headhunting though? Isn't he saying he's about to poach Rowan Avalar from this promising young? What are they going to do about it right now? Yeah. He's like, so he, he, I do like, he ended yeah. up being like, by the way. I think anything to relieve that yeah. pressure. He's like, by the way, um, she's great and she's mine now. Yeah. It's just, it's so brazen though. He's like looking them straight in the eyes while he does it. You know, that's like, man, that's, it's tough. Yeah. He's like, but I'm not mad at her. No. I'm mad at literally you guys, literally you three (laughs) exact people. Okay. And like for for just a second, you know, they were thinking like, well, if that's our punishment, okay. Like if we weathered it and then he's like, by the way, no, no, actually he tells general Armstrong one. Well, first of all, either you didn't know he was medically unfit, um, which means you're an idiot or you knew he was, unfit and you let him go anyway that's that would be a horrific decision and he's like well one i know you're not an idiot so uh he burns him we also learn his first name for the first time (laughs) oh nathan i did like that when he's like i know you're not an idiot nathan and then he tells the colonel colonel winston that well he should have retired when the war broke out first of all but he should he's like one the general shouldn't have let him go Two, the colonel shouldn't have gone, okay? And three, Major Paulson, you know, and now it's like, oh, it's Major Paulson now. He tells her, you should have let him die. I mean, you were at that point in command of literally battalions, okay? And you, you got out of your cockpit to go, like, help him with his heart attack. You should have let him die, okay? And... Um, I, I'm just like, he's right, though. Am I right? I was wondering what all, all of us <laughs> sitting here thought, because just because Hansa wrote this, I, I assume he doesn't necessarily mean he I does I, or does not When I read this, I thought it. he's got a point. I, he's, you know, he's got a point. <laughs> That's the problem with Hans Davion is he usually has a point. Hans is right. You should not have sent him. You should not have gone. And you should have let him yeah. die. Hans is correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, it, it's cool. Yep. But like in the army, like if you've taken casualties, but you're under fire, secure yourself, secure the lines. You're no good helping your teammate if they're hurt, if you're also dead, you know, or if you get overrun. It's a hard choice. It's the bad, it's the hard call, but that's what they pay officers to do. And, you know, Hans is right. It it was a bad call by three leaders who should have known better. I mean, I love the Light Horse. They're honorable. They're good people, but they messed up. I would have to say that I agree with everyone else, but I also know for a fact that I've done the same thing. Yeah. And uh, for what it's worth, that's really the 
the striking feature of all of this is all these bad calls were things that would be done. It is a tight knit unit. Right. It, it's at every step of the way, you know, mercenary units across all battle tech, not just the light horse. Mercenary units tend to get filled with people who don't work well inside big army formations. So, you know, why didn't you fight in the city? We don't do that. We, we protect the civilians, even if it's more dangerous for us. It's the big army doesn't do that. So it's it's this conflict of uh, the unit's ideals and morals and high ground versus big armies. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they're at the mercies of the big armies that are paying them. So, yeah. yeah. Yes, big army cuts the paycheck. Which is explicitly Hans <laughs> Davion's uh, point he's yeah. making here, right? Yeah. That is at the heart of his, uh, which uh, I think we're about to see him speak on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is where <laughs> Armstrong's, he tells the prince, well, your highness, you know, that's not really how we do business. And dude, especially <laughs> in the audiobook with the, the the one with the male narrator, which I guess is the old one at this point. I just thought he crushed yeah. it at this part. Okay, so Hans goes off. Yeah, Mr. Hans, I love this. I love, the, you know, and this is where we get, you know, he says, that, look, look, Armstrong's like, well, that's not really how we do business. And Hans yeah. is like, not how we do business. There is no <laughs> we in mercenary, but there is a me. He's like insane. He's like growling at them like me as in your employer. And he's he like, he's like hammering the desk with his finger like... Me, me, like I have been extended you an incredibly long line of trust these past few years, and I find it exploding in my face. He freaks out on them. It's awesome. It's so, it's, uh, it's, uh, this is, he's having such a bad day. It's so sad for these three. They deserve it though. And, and that's it, right? Is that it's, it's a canuppance that I think they all knew it was coming. This is like, he cools down though. He's like, you know what? Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Listen, guys, just had to do the press conference. Just had to tell everyone that Duke Michael died. Had to lie to my heir. You know, I had to go. Me and Quintus had to go to lie to Morgan <laughs> about some stuff. It's, uh, you know, this thing's a disaster. And isn't that what's interesting about this scene? You really feel the burden of an entire interstellar nation state on this man for a moment. You're like, oh, man, just last episode, we were given this guy real hard time for just like like lie into the press and just like be a little like son of a gun but uh he is a man who what he necessary to uh keep this interstellar nation afloat well and i found this moment particularly interesting because as we covered the stackpole books hans doesn't break face throughout them and in this one moment he breaks face and we see the other side of him we see the the man in control. It's only with those books that this story is able to give that context where he's at wit's end because of all the events that have been firing, yeah. which, you know, some of him caused by himself, but they're <laughs> nonetheless <clears throat> inevitably fall on his plate. And like you said, here he is human for a moment. Well, if I could also um, say mention uh, Kanan. He doesn't actually tell them that about Han, uh, Michael Hasek Davian. He never sits there and says he was the spy. He sits, he doesn't trust them anymore. It, it, it's subtle, but yeah, he never actually explains, you know, that, you know, what happened. Like, and then, so when you know that and you think back about the intel, when they're sitting there looking at each other, Quintus and Hans, they know 
and they're not telling him. They 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 they've they've lost his trust. And yeah, when he gets so mad, I think it ties back. This story stands on its own, but yeah, when you sit there and you read the three and then read this, and then you think about the press conference and there's the dude in the wheelchair or whatever, you know, hey, Colonel, oh, sorry, Prince, you know. Brandon. What's the thing that real? Yeah. yeah, what's the one thing that really got Prince, you know, Hans uh, talking? Troops. Well, soldier stuff. Yeah. I love the soldiers. I love being out there. I wish I was, these leaders put soldiers in dangers. They needed an ass chewing. It, it's, yeah. I think this, you know, takes it back to his roots you know, the core of who he is, kind of. And with that, my question to you would be, was this a moment where he broke face or is this him displaying another side that he's in control of? Interesting. I think he might have gotten a little bit more emotion than he wanted, but I think he deliberately. I mean, like one time I had to get my butt chewed out by the colonel because I'd done something stupid, but it, it was pro forma. He wasn't actually mad at me, but he had to be chew me out and I had to take it. Because that's how lieutenants and colonels work. Yeah. So I think he needed to show this. He needed to tell the light horse and he had to be angry because if he just sit there and said, okay, guys, never do that again. They'll be like, cool, cool, cool. And gone off on their light horse ways. I think he had to tell them what thin ground they were on because of this. So I think he was in control. He might've got a little bit more heated, but in every moment, he knew that flimsy's in there. We're going to talk about it here in a minute. He knew everything was set. You Every single moment from the moment they showed up, he knew. I don't think he broke face per se. I think it was a very controlled explosion. That makes a lot of sense for it. Yeah, I think it's in line with his character. Yeah, absolutely. And that that to me is the great part of this ending, even though we haven't got to the end of it yet, is that being able to see that little bit of another side of Hans, especially pairing it right after that press conference, right after you see somebody that appears in full control of his emotions that you get to see that other momentary man running a war. I mean, it's not all an act. He is righteously angry at what they did. So, I mean, but yeah, he may have been a little bit dramatic, but he is, and it was fun to write. I'm telling you, it's, you know, I've written Hans in love. I've written Hans in different, a lot of different ways, but writing him furious. That was fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I like how at the end he specifies that, He's very pleased with the um, performance of the troops, right? The bravery and valor and skill that they demonstrated. He's very disappointed in them. All right. He makes that very clear. Very clear. And he has Quintus hand over an envelope containing their new orders. Okay. So what's going to happen is Winston will, will remain in command for a little bit until Major Fallahy is ready. I'm assuming he doesn't say it, but I'm assuming at that point, uh, Colonel Winston is to retire. <laughs> that doesn't need to be stated. He's just like, you're in charge until he's ready. A slow rollout of the retirement. And so what they're going to do now is take the 21st Striker Regiment to Sudeten because they are officially on loan to the LCAF and they'll be defending the Olivetti Weapons Facility. Not only that, and this is interesting, the survivors of the 42nd Armored remember that mercenary company. Right. So they've got a bunch of uh, prisoners from the 42nd and the Capellans aren't going to pay ransom. They don't want them. They're not going to pay out their contracts. So the unit is for all purposes donezo. <laughs> right. They're gone. There is no more 42nd. So what we're going to do is the light horse is going to absorb them into the 21st. Huh? Hear me out. Back up to strength. There you go. So just take those prisoners. You're just gonna you're just gonna hire those prisoners. And Armstrong's like, well, that's not really 
But uh, we we'd already heard early on, right? There's this kind of a specific way the Aerodonny Lighthorn yeah. business. Like, we kind of have a whole thing going on. And Hans <laughs> is like, no, you don't. And Hans like, you know what? You're right. Actually, it's uh, silly us, yeah. but he does explain it. Yes, he does. He does. Actually, I, I like how he's like, yeah. listen, they're experienced, available, and dead broke. All right. Not only that, oh, but crucially, <laughs> this will make the 21st appear at full strength, which we're going to need yeah. because we're not going to talk about, yeah, this didn't, by the way, I meant to tell you. Because none of this happened. <laughs> this never happened. I've already sent this over to Dr. Bonsai. There's only one casualty. Nothing's going on. Yeah. We're going to burn the tape on this one. And so here, Hansa, I love that you set up this like little kerfluffle for them because now they have to go, well, Sir Morgan asked us to uh to tell him oh what my happened. God. It's so funny. The ending where is there like is there anything else? Any questions? And they're like, Oh yeah, Morgan uh ran into us and said that we should tell them what we talked about. Should and and yeah. it, Hansa's like Yeah. Absolutely not. There's Absol no way. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Hans is just like, no, no. He looks. What do you think? Yeah. He, he's literally he, like, he tells him, don't worry. I'll just yeah. send Quintus over to lie to him some more. It's fine. Quintus, can you go lie to Morgan? And Quintus is like, I'm on it. He's like, That's literally what happens. And then uh, they're like, we're so sorry. And Hans is like, I don't accept it. Basically, he's like, he's just, you let me down, guys. Quintus is like, it's time to go. Oh, but for real, he hands right. He, he, um, the deed to that moon though, with the excellent sport fishing and the growing logging <laughs> industry, he, he, he tells them, he's like, listen, I'm, I'm going to send a copy of that. Tell Rowan it's hers. If she accepts my commission, I'll see her soon. And I'm like, dude, she's <laughs> totally going to accept. She's gone. And, and that's not just a random moon. It's got excellent fishing. What was, what was, uh, Lila looking for? And she's yep. allowed to bring a plus one. Hans knows everything that happened. That's very funny. I didn't put that together <laughs> when I read it, that he tailored yeah. the offer to make sure there is no chance at a no. He does his homework. Oh, the fishing is a reference to Lila. Yep. And so is the plus one. He knows exactly who she's going to yep. bring. And he knows exactly how to set the hook and, his new, and her new fiance. He knows how to get exactly what he wants. <laughs> That makes sense. Oh, right. I understand the well. It's like a deep cut reference back to his own story. Where I was just like, oh, the fishing. I forgot about like, yeah, she's talking about fishing. They're talking about fishing way back at the beginning. Okay. That's pretty good. I try. I didn't connect that at all. No. I, I think he thought so too. <laughs> I really when when he said that, I wasn't like, oh, that's a reference to the fishing from earlier. Um, but it totally is. He's right. Yeah, but on their way out, he's just like, I'll be keeping an eye on you guys. All right? All right? And if anything happens like this again, we will be having a very uncomfortable conversation. One way, specifically. One yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like this one, really. And the last line is, good, Quintus will show you out. There is no we in Mercenary. Yeah, when I knew what he was going to say, I decided to use it as the title. I'm like, I don't know. I'm, you know like, I bounced off my family. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's fun. So... I feel like finding a title for your story has got to be son of a gun. I, I hate finding titles. It, it's one of the <laughs> hardest parts. 
uh, John or Phil, they'll be like, you know, okay, hey, the, the story you're sending in, what's the title for it? I'm like, Hands of Story 5. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you should do one old school. You know the double titles? The old school double titles, like the this or the this. I love those. I like the or. I love when the authors are like, you pick. Yeah. I'm serious. Moby Dick or the whale, the hobbit or there and back again. I like that. Two titles. Twice the work. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Twice the work. Why, why stop at two? We can have three. That's my recommendation. No, that's a, my recommendation is ma- is put two. That's true. That's what I said. I'll stand on it. It's like Brent doing actor picks. Oh man, I do want to say I apologize. I didn't want you to think when I was talking about I was talking about context, not that your story doesn't stand on its own. Just oh, yeah. just for yeah, no, uh, no. Yeah, oh, absolutely. okay, okay. No, yeah, I wanted to stand on its own because every story, you know, I, I believe in what Stan Lee said. Uh, every comic is somebody's first. And that's why, like, in the first couple pages, they introduce all the characters. They'll even rebrief people on what their powers are. So in every one of my stories, it talks about how battle mix work. They always generate heat. They do blah, blah, blah. Because every story is somebody's first. Maybe, and not, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but I right. write like that. So, yeah, I absolutely did not take offense to it because I think it works better in context. Yeah. Well, and especially with Battletech having so many entry points for so many different people. It could be that story is the perfect one to get somebody introduced in it. So when you make that recommendation as a fan of Battletech to say, this is the one I want you to read, it might be something that's farther in. It might be something that is not the first book in the series. Yeah, which is actually a really good question. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Blast him. Kill him. This is a question I've personally been on a crusade to solve because I have a buddy who I've kind of got him into Battletech like a little bit. And he does love reading sci-fi, but I like, I'm not sure where to like get him in. We're doing this whole thing and I still don't feel like I actually have like a real solid. So what, if you were going to recommend a first battle tech for foray, whether it's novella or short story or shrapnel, et cetera. I think the no greater honor anthology is actually a great place to start because you follow the same unit. But you also see it across different timelines, so you get a feel for those eras. So I, I think this anthology is a great place to start. Um, the legacy one is a... It's got an audiobook. Yes, it does have an audiobook. And especially, like, you know, for your friend. It's like, you know, well, he was in the artillery. Okay, well, read Jason Hans' story first. You know, if you like it, then go back to the beginning of stuff. You know, because you're, you're kind of like in or out. Legacy is a great anthology, but... After rereading it, I don't know if I, you know, because it, it starts pretty dark. There's a lot of darkness in it. And I'm like, ah, it's, this one's a little bit, this anthology is a lot lighter, but Legacy is not a bad spot. Question of Survival by Brian Young is a great spot to jump into the Ill Clan era, though you can also jump in with Damalically Sanction, really. I mean, you have a little bit of catch up, but Mike Cervella does such an amazing job of fleshing out this kind of, he explains it all into chapters one and two. It's like, okay, these are the players, everything was bad, and go. So, and then, Finally, Shrapnel. And specifically, I think Shrapnel 15, and very specifically, uh-huh. I think Jason Smetzer's new Grey Death Legion story that kicks off Shrapnel 15, I think you read that one and you're either in or out. I, it, it's got battle. It's got honor. It, I absolutely love everything he's done. Please, <laughs> if you talk to him, just let him know. I, I love the new Grey Death Legion. It's easy, my favorite. <laughs> Like of yeah. some of the of the new uh, and and there's a yeah. lot of great stuff coming 
plan. Yeah. And honestly, the new Great Death Anthology that just came out, absolutely a great place to walk in because you're seeing this unit start up. I mean, they're digging out mechs and they explain how mechs work. I mean, there, there's not a great trilogy to jump into, but there's definitely places you can hook. I mean, I love pointing to Shrapnel because it gives you a spread of stories across the timeline and they're nice bite size. You know, they're not sitting there reading for days. It's like, okay, I like this story. Let me keep reading. So those are my suggestions. It's so funny. I didn't think of no greater honor, but you're right. That is a really good starting point because it displays the eras so well. I actually, I actually might, that might be the one I use. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, I was going to say, and you know, ELH is like, they're so military. They're, they're a real, like, um, and they put the military stories. fiction in military fiction for Battletech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just mean, I can totally see it. Start. I never uh, considered that, but that's a good point. I mm-hmm. think that's a completely reasonable. I th- it's almost like I sell books at uh, Gen Con. <laughs> I, I think you could give this to someone. You know, No Greater Honor, The Complete Era, Donnie Light Horse Chronicles, edited by John Helfers and Philip Davis. I mean, this is a, I could see a first-time reader definitely enjoying <laughs> yeah. the offerings. That would be for an adult reader. If like a younger reader, I would I would go with Brian Young's Fox Tales. You know, that definitely oh, has yeah. a young young adult vibe that's just perfect to bring in younger readers. So that character, I've really grown to like her a lot, especially now that she's hooked up with the spoilers. <laughs> the lone wolf guys, like and she's like a little subcontract of them. You know what's funny yeah. is I mean, if you read, I just thought so the lone wolves in Tamar Rising. There's there's more stuff that that they do that happens after what they've already done in those short stories, and I'm just like, oh, is this the next thing they're gonna do? Because that'd be cool. What is this? What is this? Mick? <laughs> what is this? That's guillotine. A guillotine. Yeah, it's yeah. a guillotine. A guillotine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm so happy that in the paperback version they have the pictures of Max. That was one of my favorite things in the old books, you know, and I think it helps new readers. You know, I just. I almost wish they put the big pictures at the front of the stories. <laughs> <laughs> the artwork looks great. Yeah, they do give you two yeah. at the end where it's almost like, were you right? You know, let's see how your imagination <laughs> measures up. It's true. They should put them at the beginning. That'd make more sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where it's just always been that way. Yeah. Why is this? Then why does the Merlin look like this? <laughs> the other ones look like this that's the old yeah. art i don't they they had the put art, out yeah. the, the merlin just recently got artwork but yeah like i remember the first book i ever read uh battletech wise was the ghost of winter and it had all the art <laughs> in the back yeah and so i think they've just always they've been doing it for so long that it's kind of tradition yeah i mean not that I'm calling out the two editors on the cover. <laughs> no, but um, I just, you know, I think it would make it easier. But yeah, I think it's just tradition or whatever. So the story rules. I'm so glad we got to talk about this here. I was excited. I was like, man, it would be cool. I, I, I even think, well, I mean, I think Mr. <laughs> I think you suggested it originally, like, oh, like a while ago, like when, when we were just talking about, oh, We've been talking about doing this for a while where, where we're like, oh man, we should get Hans on here. We can talk about one of his stories. Wouldn't that be so cool? And I think even, even then you pointed out, it's like, well, you know, um, No We and Mercenary takes place at the same day as, as, as one of the chapters in the Warrior books. And I was like, oh, good, good point. Good point. I'm just so glad uh, we were able to do this because um, the story rules, right? There's just so much stuff like this. There's so many cool short stories and this one's perfect. It's like, 
Man, if you're just reading the novels, though, you, you have to check out some of the supplementary material. I'm saying there's some good stuff in here. This is what I'm saying. I appreciate you asking me and having me on because uh, I think I mentioned before, but the second story tends to get a lot more focus. And, you know, it, it seems to, to link into people better. They literally love Clan Glyph Scorpions. So this story kind of gets buried. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That one was good, too. However, <laughs> so I, I'm really glad you guys enjoyed this one. I have a question. Do you know of any other really notable like fourth succession war short stories like this. Like in this era. I know there's a bunch of them. I think there's like an anthology. I think one of them is focused on. There was, there was an entire operation rat. Yes. Anthology. Yes. Um, I just that, know there's that, like, that, right. there's a lot actually. It's the fourth succession war. And speaking of fiction recommendations recently on the mercenary star podcast, you announced your next work that'll be coming out soon. A skulk of foxes. Uh, yeah. For a skulk of foxes. I'm really happy for it. I really, I'm hoping readers like it. Uh, it's an Ilkland era story and it's, it features the sea foxes. And for those who have seen the Mercenary Star podcast, which you absolutely, you know, definitely check out Seth's stuff. Those, they know that it's the Screaming Eagles, a unit that's been around in, in since the entire history of Battletech since the very beginning. And they are a former Star League unit that stayed behind. Yeah. And, They've always been kicking around, and I was allowed to bring them back and to update them. They, they never died. Um, they're just which is amazing somewhere. Yeah, so yeah, they they they, they get beat up a lot. <laughs> so I was allowed to to you know to use them in my story. You know to feed to, to shine this spotlight on them for the first time in forty years, and I'm super excited. The story is a very low level story. So you know if readers are thinking or listeners, I guess are thinking that it's about the the sea fox cons and the movements of amags and stuff like that it's not it's a very it, it's about essentially a star commander and a watch agent and the screaming eagles it's a very low level story and i hope people like it it's you know it's coming out soon it's in editing and the art's already done i the art is phenomenal i wish i could credit the artist i still haven't learned their name but absolutely killer so i hope people like it i just really do and the the art you can see it. I saw today actually that it was posted on Sarna. You, as Mister Hansa was saying, you can check out uh, the Mercenary Star podcast where I think he posts a still of the art at one point. Mm-hmm. And it's the uh, the cover image, you know, the, the, yes. the, the episode. So uh, no, I I just really hope people like it, and I'm hoping that if they like it enough, they'll uh, well know Nag John or whoever. To sit there and say, "Hey, make Jason write more stories," <laughs> and then I will. You know, that's actually a, a question I had here: is when do we get a, a full length Jason Hansa novel? <laughs> I am currently working on book two of the War of the Reavings trilogy with uh, Craig A. Reed and Philip A. Lee. <laughs> so I'm Jason A. Hansa, you know, technically. <laughs> I'm A. Hansa, <laughs> but yeah, I'm working on that, so that will be out eventually. So that's going to be a full length novel. And uh, after that, essentially, when my calendar clears, I will see what they need me to write. A lot of times it's solicitation. Everything I've written right. up to this point, they ask me, would you please write a light horse story? And that's how you got Innocent Defenses. Would you please write a mercenary story? And I pitched, you know, the Screaming Eagles and Sea Foxes, and they said yes, but they wanted a Merc story. So hopefully there, after I write this novel, there will be another one down <laughs> the road about what I couldn't tell you. I, I really don't know. So. <laughs> well, I know we're all excited. To see what you got cooking up next in the pipe for us. So. Yeah, yeah. I have stories that I, I also tinker with, you know, on my own time. 
but yeah, I've got stories like that, that, you know, and after I get the war raving out of the way, I want to write some more shrapnel stuff, you know, in between novels. You know, I, I really think that these little 10K stories are my sweet spot. You know, I, I loved my novella, uh, The Skulk of Foxes. So yeah, you know, in, in between t- 10 and 30K is where I call home and I really want to write more. Yeah, Skulk of Foxes. I'm excited. It's going to rule. And you'll be able to get that, like, I'll be able to buy that in paperback and all that, right? Will yep. I be able to, will that yeah, be physical? I, I have been told. I'm oh, super yeah, excited. It'll be my first physical thing with my oh, name cool. on the cover. Heck yeah. I mean, I've, yes. I've had my name on the shrapnel a couple of times, but my first novella with, you know, my name, I, I, it, it's going to be embarrassing how many copies I'm going to buy. I'm going to send them to like, my <laughs> teachers. I'm going to send them to my dad. I'm going to send them to my best friend. I mean, it's going to be embarrassing. I'm going to drop them off in libraries, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's going to hit number one on Amazon, and when they check the sheets, it's going to be all me. <laughs> well, you'll know three of them at least uh, have our names on them. Oh, dude, then yeah. exactly. Then people yeah. will Google J, and then they'll maybe they'll they'll see our podcast. They'll be, oh, featuring Jason Hanzo. They'll be like, oh, that's that famous author, and then they'll listen oh, to our podcast. I, I hope. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Or I'm like, oh, that oh, guy. Dude, he's right. So no, I I, re- I love your podcast. So I'm I'm always you know. Anytime I can get sucked in or, you know, weasel my in, play in. <laughs> well, we love having you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yep. I'm sure it won't be the last time we have you on. I get a twinkle in my eye every time uh, you give us some little nugget of insight. <laughs> I'm here for it. Oh, we got so much this episode. I well, This is exactly what I wanted. I'm like, I know. this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully our <laughs> listeners out there enjoyed it as well. We're going to, you know, Battletech's going to run out of continuity errors. At some point, you know, he's like, his work will be done. You know what I mean? Like, then I can finally sleep. Yeah. Like, he's the chosen one. Well, speaking of sleep, we should, we should let this man yes. get off of here. This was another episode of, of Mex and Men. I am Keenan Hill. I was joined as usual by my two good friends, Brent and Aaron, and our special guest, Jason Hansa. Again, thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We talked about your short story, There is No We in Mercenary from the Aerodyne Light Horse Chronicles, No Greater Honor Anthology. And of course, we'd like to thank all the other writers and artists who work so hard to keep Battletech alive. We'd like to thank Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property. We have an email, advice at heat dot management if you have any questions corrections please advice at heat dot management we're also on social media twitter instagram at of mexican men and hansa where can people find you online if they wanted to reach out and tell you how great these stories are they can generally find me hanging out in the valhalla club discord or the mechbay discord so on discord is my professional contact location there you have it. Not only can you find Jason Hanza, we are also on the Valhalla Club Discord as well. If it sounds like a place you might out, you should uh, come check it out. We will return next week to continue our discussion of Warrior Coupe by Michael A. Stackpole. Until then. Till next time. Say long. <laughs>